We ain't taking him to a hospital. If we don't, he's gonna die. And I'm very sad about that, but some fellas are lucky and some ain't. Fuck you touching me for, man! You wanna fuck with me? I'll show you who you're fucking with. You wanna shoot me, you little piece of shit? Go ahead, take a shot. Fuck you, White. I didn't create this situation, I'm dealing with it. You're acting like a first-year fucking thief. I'm acting like a professional. They get him, they can get you. They get you, they get closer to me, and that can't happen. And you're looking at me like it's my fault? I didn't tell him my name, I didn't tell him where I was from. Shit, 15 minutes ago, you almost told me your name. Your buddy there is stuck in a situation you created. So if you want to throw bad looks somewhere, throw them at a mirror. You kids shouldn't play so rough. Somebody's gonna start crying. What happened to you? Figured you were dead. Hey, you okay? Did you see what happened to Blue? We didn't know what happened to you and Blue. That's what we were wondering about. What? Come on, man. Look, Brown is dead. Orange got it in the belly. He's Enough! Alive. Enough! You better start talking, asshole. Because we got shit we need to talk about. We're already freaked out. We need you acting freaky like we need a fucking bag on our hip. Okay, let's talk. We think we got a rat in the house. I guarantee we got a rat in the house. What makes you say that? Is that supposed to be funny? Look. We think this place ain't safe. This place just ain't secure anymore. We're leaving. You should go with us. Nobody's going anywhere. Piss on this fucking turd. We're out of here. Don't take another step, Mr. White. Fuck you, maniac! Scott, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 335, Reservoir Dogs. And folks, this is one for us. <laughs> well, I think that the folks will enjoy. I think so. Yeah. I think the warning should be this will probably be long, and it will probably have a significant amount of clips. But so what? Deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> the podcast is free. And we like to use clips, especially for a movie that is very dialogue heavy and it all seems like gold. For sure. So almost every scene feels worthy. It's interesting. I actually put off watching this for a long time in my. I had seen Pulp Fiction before this, and I had an English teacher who had a poster of this hanging up in his classroom. <laughs> in high school? Yeah. And wow. it was the teacher that I hated the most out of my entire academic career. Wow. So I kind of didn't want to watch it. <laughs> and one day, Keith was like, we got to watch Reservoir Dogs, dude. And so we did. Okay. But, yeah. So I put it off for a while. 
but that was the reason I hated that teacher so much. Yeah, I think that I watched it probably after Pulp Fiction, like a lot of people in the world. Although, I can't actually say that to a certainty, because as has been referenced countless times on the show, it was definitely an era of watching a lot of stuff all yeah. at once, and it's kind of been blurred together I into just remember one th- time period. I, I really remember this one. I'm sure Keith has no memory of him being the one saying that we needed to watch it, because he had watched it, and I think he brought it over my house and we did, but... I knew it was a movie that I needed to watch, but I put it off for quite a while. Before we get into Reservoir Dogs, let's remind everyone to follow the show on Twitter, slash X, at Greatest Pod. And as always, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, wherever you're finding us. Please, if you use Apple Podcasts, take a second to give us a rating and review. We love to read people's funny or... Oh, definitely just very kind yeah. messages that they put on there and in that vein you can hit us up via email greatestpod at gmail.com greatestpod at gmail.com we'd love to read your emails on the show and last episode i i gave out a new homework assignment mm-hmm. to our listeners which is for anyone who has done a listener request or has one in the chamber coming up later this year or wants to do one in the future any listener requests ever, we would love for those people to reach back out to us via email, greatestpod at gmail.com, to tell us your story about why you like this movie, how you found it, how it came into your life, why you wanted us to talk about it, your thoughts on the episode that we did, whatever. Mm-hmm. Whatever you want. I threw that out there for Carla, who requested Once Bitten, which was the last episode. Spoiler alert, she's already done it, and I was blown away by she the got email. An a. Yeah, she got an A on the assignment. You're probably thinking, okay, so when are we going to hear it? Well, you're not going to hear it this episode. We've got something else for the email segment today, but next week you'll hear it. This will be an ongoing thing, so whenever you have the chance. It doesn't have to be today, but over the next few days, months, whatever. People pausing the episode to go write an email. <laughs> Well, I'm just saying, yeah. it's not like there's going to be some give us a second where I read these all at once. That no. would be fun, though. Well, yeah, that not- would be assuming we definitely get enough, yeah. which I don't know that we will. So this would just be something that you can email us about. If you have thought, hey, I wanted to reach back out to you guys, but I, I don't know. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's weird to think of a subject to write about. I don't know. There you go. Tell us about your listener request, why you liked the movie, whatever. You'll get a better example next time when I read. There you go. Carla's about once bitten. Anything else? Free stickers. Questions about listener requests. Questions about movies. Questions about what's going on with Letterboxd. Whatever. Reach out to us. What is going on with Letterboxd? I don't know. (laughs) Nothing. Reach out to us on Twitter. Reach out to us via email. Find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby. Let's get into Reservoir Dogs. Enough of that for now. Reservoir Dogs, 1992, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. This was the big debut, the feature film debut, an independent movie that changed the game forever, really a part of a wave. I guess you would probably credit Sex, Lies, and Videotape a little bit more as starting the wave, but this was the same wave as Linklater's Slacker, Kevin Smith's Clerks, all happening. What was... Robert Rodriguez's first one, El Mariachi or something like that. These were all happening around the same time. It was a 
really cool time period for movies because I think the 80s got a little schlocky, a little big and loud and noisy, and the budgets were out of control, and the muscles were too big, and the steroids, and the hair. and it, a, Big boobs. Yeah, it was just a kind of a crazy, out-of-control era, and a lot of the movies were complete shit, especially hair. the studio route. The hair was just insane. It was up to some new, fresh, eager artists out there to shake things up and put a little bit more spice of life into the material, into their art, rather than just the corporate homogenization that was going on, which is very similar to what's going on now with superheroes and Mm -hmm. that whole thing. Hopefully, we'll have another wave of independent filmmakers coming out at some point. But yeah, this was all part of that. What I think is really cool about this one is you can sit there as a person who hasn't made a movie and understand how you get to Slacker or how you get to Clerks. Making a crime movie, a lot of people would have just been like, I can't do that on this type of budget. Yeah, I do think that Tarantino was a little bit flexible, a little bit willing to do whatever he needed to do to get it done. He was very adamant that this script was going to be the movie he was going to make because, as we'll get into, at this point he had already sold the script for True Romance, right? which ends up being directed by Tony Scott. Tony Scott had actually wanted to direct Reservoir Dogs, but Tarantino, who had not done shit, right? It's like this was already mine. had yeah. already had the balls to be like, I'm making this to my myself. But he was under no illusions to paraphrase Christopher Walken from Pulp Fiction. Yeah, it's not like he thought, oh, I'm gonna make a movie that looks as good and is as big as a Tony Scott well, he's movie. Certainly not getting a Tony Scott budget. He just was thinking, yeah. no matter what, I'm going to do this. Right. And when you find out about the different budget stuff and him being okay with only getting one song as long as it was the song he wanted. He didn't care about the rest of the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. He was willing to make a lot of sacrifices just to get this to happen. The budget ends up being $1.2 to $3 million, something in that range. Gets a little bit hard to tell whenever more money is infused after the fact for soundtracks and whatnot. But whatever. Somewhere in that range. The box office is only $2.9 million. Was not really a huge hit at the time no the film was released in america with almost no promotion so it did not do that well well that makes sense in england however it was such a huge hit that quentin tarantino would be mobbed as he walked down the street in london british filmmakers have been influenced by it ever since tarantino partially financed this film with the fee he received for a now infamous appearance as an Elvis impersonator on an episode of The Golden Girls, entitled <laughs> Sophia's Wedding Part 1. Wow. For those of you who have never seen Reservoir Dogs, which is actually a bit in the book High Fidelity, but it doesn't cross over to the movie because it's set later, but in the book, it's a whole thing about it. Have you seen Reservoir Dogs? <laughs> yeah, I've seen it, but okay, so for this, pretend you haven't seen it. But I have seen it. And just imagine the character in the book is the one that ends up being played by Jack Black, yeah. not getting the premise of pretending he hadn't seen a movie. But I have seen it. Right. Anyway, if you haven't seen it, it's streaming on Netflix, which was a surprise to me. So that's where I watched it, actually, because I do own the 4K. But I know, We buy all these movies, and then if they're streaming on Netflix, we just watch them on So Netflix. I watched the 4K a few months ago, because I think Lindsay hadn't seen it, so we watched it. And then, But then I was just like, I'm just going to watch it on Netflix, because I saw it sitting up there. I have a perfect excuse, which is the time bar at the bottom, and then 
it's just very easy yeah. to stop constantly and do my notes. Listen, and all that stuff. I was totally planning on rewatching the 4K. I actually was going to watch something else, and I was scrolling through, and I'm like, oh, I have to do this for the pod, so I'm just going to put it on. Well, last year they decided to issue Tarantino's first two films, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, yeah. on 4K because ever since Harvey Weinstein was arrested and went to jail, and it's basically the end of the Weinstein <laughs> Company, which Miramax didn't exactly turn into but whatever yeah the whole thing all of that catalog tarantino's was snapped up right away by lionsgate who is wow. now issuing the home video releases for his films i have to say if you were gonna like rank which movies needed to be in 4k reservoir dogs and pulp fiction would be the two that need it the least i agree and we talked about it and we might have talked about it on the show the Pulp Fiction 4K, I, I think, makes the movie look worse. I have a thing about budgets with yeah. 4K movies. I think that you reach a point of diminishing returns with making the image look better when the movie was made so cheaply. You right. start to notice how cheap everything looks. For example, this will probably get mentioned later, but Steve Buscemi is wearing black jeans. He's not even wearing black suit pants. Wow. I didn't notice that, but that's funny. And it's hard to tell. Yeah. If you don't know, but if you know and then you watch the 4K, it's way more obvious. Yeah, right. Little things like that, little cheap out moments where they didn't have the right stuff or they couldn't afford something. And yeah, I think that you see the, the stitching a little bit with Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs in mm -hmm. the 4K. It's not like it's no a huge difference or it's terrible but it's, or anything. But it is noticeable. Yeah, it's an instance where I think that some movies don't need to keep getting better looking, they're fine in regular HD. Yeah, right. The 1080p, it's fine. But anyway, we watched it on Netflix. You can also, of course, do a streaming rental. We've already covered our first experiences. Mine was on VHS. Was yours a DVD sitch or a VHS It would have been a DVD. Mine was VHS, but it was at the end of the VHS days, and I believe Reservoir Dogs was among the first DVDs I ever purchased. Yeah. I think a lot of people probably remember those DVDs that were the bright colors of the different characters. They'd have the different character covers right. with their slip covers. It was a very iconic DVD release right up there with a lot of my other first purchases like Boogie Nights or Fight Club or yeah, Pulp Fiction. They definitely were able to make the legend of Reservoir Dogs like carry on and make it seem like this cool thing for years after the release. I think it was that popular. Yeah. There's been multiple video games. It probably has made, I don't know, a hundred times its budget now because right. of stuff that's happened after its initial release. It's one of those ones that everybody owned on DVD. Mm -hmm. Every college dorm had it. Yeah, yeah. Posters, Posters every year. Definitely, yeah. Shirts, whatever. A lot of merchandise over time i think the movie's made a ton of money but i do think it has that legacy it's not quite at the level of a scarface mm -hmm. if you know what i mean for that kind of every poster of a certain kind of guy who thinks he's tough or whatever <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of masculinity the fight clubs the pulp fictions the reservoir dogs the scarface the goodfellas shorts every fucking color spring breakers as well <laughs> One of the most interesting facets of this film is probably a lot of the what-ifs and the castings, which is sort of a feature of Tarantino's work over the years because he's always been pretty open with 
casting ideas that he's had and lists that he's put together mm-hmm. for Pulp Fiction has been published a million times, even though I don't think he intentionally released that. But people have heard his ideas for parts. And right. I don't know. For this movie, since it's a bunch of acting, it's actors acting, it is a gangster Glengarry Glen Ross. Definitely. It does feel like a play. It almost feels more like a play every time I watch it. So the casting, the performances do become part of the story. Quentin Tarantino had been working at Video Archives, famously, a video store in Manhattan Beach, California, and originally planned to shoot the film with his friends on a budget of $30,000 in a 16-millimeter black-and-white format with producer Lawrence Bender playing a police officer chasing Mr. Pink. Hmm. Bender gave the script to his acting teacher, whose wife gave the script to Harvey Keitel, Kaitel liked it enough to sign as co-producer so That's Tarantino true. and Bender would have an easier job finding funding. With his assistance, they raised $1.5 million. Kaitel also paid for Tarantino and Bender to host casting sessions in New York where the duo found Steve Buscemi, Michael Madsen, and Tim Roth. John Cryer was asked to audition for the role of Mr. Pink, but he backed out at the last minute. Hmm. George Clooney also read for a part. Tim Roth's agents originally wanted him to be Mr. Pink or Mr. Blonde, but he preferred Mr. Orange because he would be an English actor pretending to be an American, playing a cop pretending to be a robber. From what I understand, George Clooney auditioned for Mr. Blonde and was denied. Christopher Walken was offered that same part and then turned it down. He ends up being in... Pulp Fiction, and I have to say that Michael Madsen's performance, if you're having trouble doing a, an impression of Michael Madsen, you may stumble into a walk-in. Yeah. I'm not saying he's super similar. It's not Christian Slater and Jack Nicholson, but there's some similarities Sure, there. sure. Especially with, are you going to bark all day? Yeah. He's emphasizing words kind of in a weird way, which is reminiscent That's of true. walk-in. I do think they landed in a good place, though, because it's weird to think of... Clooney, who I know wasn't what he is now back in this time period, but... He would have been two facts of life. Yeah, like, too charming, though. Maybe too easy to look at for Yeah, Matt's got a a layer of sleaze to him. I think Matt Dillon was also maybe in the mix. I could buy that. Which he's got a little bit of that same sleaze. He is very similar to Madsen in some ways. Definitely. I could definitely picture Matt Dillon as the lead in Species. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Not Clooney, though. Michael Madsen initially auditioned for Mr. Pink, while Steve Buscemi originally auditioned for Mr. White. Vincent Gallo turned down the role of Mr. Pink. Hmm. Samuel L. Jackson auditioned for Mr. Orange, which didn't go anywhere, but of course put him in Quentin's mind for Pulp Fiction. Robert Forster and Timothy Carey auditioned for the role of Joe Cabot. Hmm. Forster would have been great, but it would have denied us his performance in Jackie Brown, probably, because I think that Tarantino, by 97, was pretty high on himself and really liked the idea of reintroducing us to somebody. Yeah, true. And so I think that the moment would have passed because that by then, Forrester would have been one back of his on guys. Yeah. And yeah, he would have been back on the map. David Duchovny auditioned for a part. According to Duchovny, Tarantino told him, I like what you do. I just don't know if I want you to do it in my movie. Mm-hmm. Which is sort of a compliment, but sort of not. <laughs> well, he's kind of the king of that type yeah. of exchange. He's very honest and open in a way that is disorienting sometimes. I don't yeah. really think he means to be an asshole. No. But but it can sometimes be off-putting. Yeah. He's not afraid to give his opinions in a world where 
people like him generally do not. Right. In the same way, at least. Yeah. Scorsese will go on and on about things he loves. Right, but you hardly ever hear him being like critical of things. Right, and he's not doing it of things that are necessarily always in the moment either. Right. And now I'm sure that people who love Marvel will be like, what about that? And I'm, and you know what? Marvel doesn't count because it sucks. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> Evidently, Tarantino really wanted to get James Woods into this movie for some reason. James Woods I can buy in this movie for sure. He wanted him to be Mr. Pink. He wanted him to be Mr. Orange. I don't know exactly what happened. It seems as if they reached out to Woods' people with offers that were way below what he would normally get, so mm-hmm. his people never even showed him the script. Yeah, well, it does seem like that happens. Because later, when Tarantino met James Woods, he told him about this, and Woods then got new representation immediately. <laughs> Although, to be fair to those representatives, he may have said no way. Yeah, I don't know that people necessarily thought this was going to be incredible. Who knows what well, people thought. Well, that's true, and... Who knows how often that's actually happening where people are reaching out for stuff like, hey, will you just do this? They might have to shut down a lot of people. That, well, like, yeah, it, I'm it's sure. It's going to be nothing. Well, generally, that's what their job is, yeah. to, so it doesn't waste everyone's time. He has a quote at that point, you need to meet it, or it needs right. to be a passion project of the person. That's essentially how it works. There's some actors that take way more hands-on approaches. An example would be DiCaprio. Mm-hmm. He basically has the right of first refusal. Yeah. For anything that he could possibly play, anything that remotely makes sense, he basically can say yes or no to it. Mm-hmm. And there's certain people like that that they will know first if they're going to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Other than people like that who really know the scripts and know what's going on, the agent is just there to be like, well, you got to meet at least this threshold first. Right. And the offers clearly didn't. Nick Cage was in consideration maybe for Nice Guy Eddie. kind of think he would have been too big of a star. They probably would not have gotten him. I can't really imagine that. And I think the Nice Guy Eddie ends up being like one of the best castings. Yeah, I think you want a guy like Chris Penn. Yeah, yeah. Nick Cage would have probably been incredible in some part. Right. You know that he would have done something so weird and yeah, yeah. nuts that it probably would be awesome, but he would have overshadowed the movie. Even right. though Harvey Keitel by this time was a legend... He isn't someone that you would think of as a movie star. That's true. Nick Cage was a movie star by 1992. He would have overshadowed the movie, I think. Yeah. Viggo Mortensen auditioned for a role. He read for a Hispanic character in a scene to be performed with Harvey Keitel. Obviously, that scene didn't really make it into the movie. More than 20 years later, Quentin Tarantino offered him a role in The Hateful Eight, but Viggo couldn't commit due to scheduling conflicts. Oh, wow. The film contains multiple homages to other films. This is something that we discussed when we did Pulp Fiction. I think we probably have discussed it every time we've talked about Tarantino. This is probably, in some ways, the most jarring example because of the movies that it's borrowing from being very similar in in certain respects. Because I think his homages... And some of the situations in the other films are more bits and pieces rather than the movie itself is very similar, which this movie is very similar to the 1987 film City on Fire. Tarantino himself has said that Reservoir Dogs was influenced by Stanley Kubrick's 1956 film noir The Killing. Mm -hmm. 
I didn't go out of my way to do a ripoff of the killing, but I did think of it as my killing, my take on that kind of heist movie. And it is fairly similar. Yeah, that's true. I didn't connect those two before, but yeah, thinking about it, that is true. It does, to me, seem like it has more of the actual event in the movie, though. A little bit, yeah. yeah. The film's plot was also inspired by the 1952 film Kansas City Confidential, mm. which we mentioned a little bit when we did L.A. Confidential. Additionally, Joseph H. Lewis's 1955 film The Big Combo and Sergio Corbucci's 1966 oh. spaghetti western Django inspired the scene where a police officer is tortured in a chair, having the main characters named after colors, Mr. Pink, White, Brown, etc., was first seen in the 1974 film The Taking of Pelham 123, mm. which have you ever seen that? The original? I actually haven't, no. It's pretty good. It's one Rob, of those one boy, that, Robert Shaw. Yeah, I know it's one of those ones that's always sitting out there in physical media, like re-releases. Yeah. And I'm always thinking I've never about seen it. the remake. I haven't seen that either. <laughs> I've seen no taking of Pelham 123s. The film also contains elements similar to those found in Ringo Lamb's 1987 film City on Fire. Which I also haven't seen. So that's the thing. For me, it's all original IP. Tarantino praised the film City on Fire and mentioned it as a major influence. What he's always been great at is taking a bunch of things and swirling them all together. As I mentioned, there's several titles right there. The Killing, Kansas City Confidential, The Taking of Pelham 123, City on Fire, Django, countless other things. And he mixes them all together. I think the problem that some people have with this particular film and its similarities is that plot elements are very similar to City on Fire. I have seen it. I think Reservoir Dogs is better as I do a lot of the times when Tarantino is accused of just homaging these other things, but I can see why that's a problem for some people. Yeah, it doesn't yeah, really bother it. me as well, long as I'm entertained. To me, he still always is able to add his flair to whatever it is and make it uniquely his. Yeah, the pop culture conversations, I'm not saying he invented that idea, but his are always great and Definitely. unique. Yeah. And it's interesting to have that juxtaposition of those clerks-esque conversations but by guys who are committing crimes and yeah, murders yeah, right. and all of those things <laughs> a little bit more larger than life characters could we see something similar to a 90s independent boom now yeah i definitely think so i i think that there's always talent definitely the talent doesn't disappear it's more a matter of how does it get to us where are we gonna see it a lot of talent moved to television a lot of talent got sucked into the streaming wars. Well, and it's definitely easier to make movies now than it was then. Yeah, that's what I'm building to. And plus, it's way easier, but also, theoretically, yeah. there are more ways to see it, more outlets. That is both a good and bad thing, because there's probably too much. This movie establishes what I think of as the Tarantino Mount Rushmore. Pop culture references, extreme violence, profanity, and nonlinear storytelling. It's all there, and it's all new and interesting and shocking in 1992. Mm -hmm. It's just that it took a little time for the whole world to know, because once Pulp Fiction is released, this movie gets a whole other life where all of a sudden people are discovering Reservoir Dogs. I can't speak to that directly because I was still too young Definitely. when Pulp Fiction came right. out, but you hear about that a lot. You read about that in the research. This movie wasn't huge at the box office, but combined with Pulp Fiction in two years, all of a sudden exploding. Yeah, yeah. 
very much like Jim Carrey in the same year, which right. we talked about last episode. 1994, everything's happening. And then Forrest Gump wins the best picture. I think what carries us through Reservoir Dogs more than anything is the vibe, energy, aesthetic, and confidence. The dialogue is great, and it's electric, and it's interesting. Definitely. Which, uh, more than anything else. More than plot. For sure. Which we'll talk about more. I, I think nowadays Tarantino might have a harder time breaking through because I think audiences have been weirdly conditioned to only worry about moving the plot forward at all times. And Tarantino's best stuff sometimes is not moving the plot forward totally. at all. Yeah. <laughs> the best parts of Jackie Brown are just hanging out talking. And he likes long scenes, which I think is less appealing to mainstream audiences these days. I think everybody just wants exactly what you need and then move on to the next thing, not letting it breathe. Speaking of energy being one of those things, a lot of masculine energy. It's a very masculine film. No speaking parts for women. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> it is very much like Glengarry, Glenn Ross. Right. I actually don't have any issues with Tarantino because I think I get the dude's vibe. In other words, I know that some of these things are a little questionable sometimes. Yeah. No speaking parts for women in this movie. But I don't think that he is actually a misogynist, even though he gets accused of it fairly often. For sure. I just think he knows where his strengths are. And in 1992, I don't think that he probably had confidence to write. Well, he certainly wasn't ready to make Kill Bill at this point. Well, think about true romance. And when we yeah. talk about the manic pixie dream girl and whether or not Alabama is one and how realistic is this character, obviously not very... That's very much a fairy tale. Even in that movie, she is isolated. She is the only woman, really, that talks, mm -hmm. I think. Right? Uh, there might be a couple of yeah, lines yeah. for some of the other girls working with Drexel or something. Right, but there's right. not like Correct. huge dialogue with yeah, anyone yeah. else. And yeah, so I don't know if he had that confidence. But yeah, later you write characters like The Bride and Kill Bill. One of the biggest pieces of advice that you ever hear from writers to writers is write what you know. And I think at this point, this is what it was. Right. And then there's also the racial stuff, which I think that when you learn his full story and you read his books and try to get a sense of his experiences up to this point, there is a little bit of having to put things in perspective, thinking about intent. There is yeah. more nuance to these things. And I, I think there's more of an explanation as, as to the type of guy he is but yeah i mean I obviously agree. controversial and not having any women speak in this movie is totally something that would probably never happen now but he did say that one of his ideas for his last film at one point was maybe doing a remake of this film and throwing out different ideas maybe an all-female cast or something like that which would have been interesting yeah totally <laughs> i'm glad that that's not going to be his last film that would have been a like weird that. way to go out for sure let me tell you what like a virgin's about it's all about a girl who digs a guy with a big dick. Entire song. It's a metaphor for big dicks. No, it ain't. It's about a girl who's very vulnerable. She's been fucked over a few times, and then uh, she meets a guy who's Whoa, 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 whoa. Time out, Green. Toby. They tell that fucking bullshit to the tourists. Toby. Who the fuck is Toby? Like a virgin's not about some sensitive girl who meets a nice fella. That's what True Blue's about. No, granted, no argument about that. What's True Blue? You ain't heard True Blue. It's a big ass in from I don't even follow that type of the pop shit. And you've never heard of True Blue. Okay, so I even say you ain't heard of it. You know, what I asked is, how's it go? Excuse me for not being the world's biggest Madonna fan. Personally, I can do without her. I used to like her early stuff. Borderline, 
When she got out in the back of the don't preach phase, I tuned out. But you guys are like making me lose my train of thought here. I was saying something. What was it? Oh, Toby's that little Chinese girl. That was her last name. What's that? That's an old address book I found on a coat I haven't worn in a coon's age. What's that name? What the fuck was I talking about? It's a true blue. It was about a guy. Uh, Tells a girl that meets a nice guy, but like a virgin with a metaphor for big dicks. Okay, let me tell you what like a virgin's about. It's all about this coos who's a regular fuck machine. Now I'm talking morning, day, night, afternoon. Dick, 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 dick. How many dicks is that? A lot. Then one day she meets this John Holmes motherfucker, and it's like, whoa, baby. I mean, this cat is like Charles Bronson in The Great Escape. He's digging tunnels. All right, now she's getting this serious dick action. And she's feeling something she didn't feel since forever. Pain. Pain. Chew, Toby, chew. It hurts. It hurts her. It shouldn't hurt. You know, her pussy should be bubbling up by now. But when this cat fucks her, it hurts. It hurts just like it did the first time. You see, the pain is reminding a fuck machine what it was once like to be a virgin. Hence, like a virgin. Wow. Give me that fucking thing. What the hell do you think you're doing? Give me my book. I'm sick of fucking hearing it, Joe. I'll give it back to you when we leave. What do you mean when we leave? Give me it back now. For the past 15 minutes now, you've been droning on about names. Toby. 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 Toby Wong. Toby Wong. Toby Wong. Toby Chung. Fucking Charlie Chan. We've got Madonna's big dick coming out of my left ear. And Toby the Jack... I don't know what, coming out of my right. Give me that book. Are you going to put it away? I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want with it. Well, then I'm afraid I'm going to have to keep it. Hey, Joe. Want me to shoot this guy? Shit. <laughs> you shoot me in a dream, you better wake up and apologize. <laughs> you guys been listening to Cave Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s? Weekend? Oh, yeah, man. It's fucking great, isn't it? You know what I heard the other day? Heartbeat, it's a love beat by Little Tony DeFranco and the Franco family. Man, I haven't heard that song since I was in the fifth fucking grade. When I was coming down here, the night the lights went out in Georgia came on, I, I ain't heard that song since it was big. But when it was big, I must have heard it a million trillion fucking times. But this is the first time I ever realized that the girl singing the song is the one who shot Andy. Wait, you mean you didn't know that Vicky Lawrence was the one who shot Andy? I thought it was the cheating wife shot Andy. Yeah, but they said that at the end of the song. I know, motherfucker. I just heard it. That's what I'm talking about. You call me motherfucker. I must have zoned out during that party. All right. I'll take care of the check. You guys can get the tip. Should be about a buck a piece. And you, when I come back, I want my book. Sorry, it's my book now. Hey, I changed my mind. Shoot this piece of shit, will you? <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody cough up some green for the little lady. Come on, throw in a buck. Uh-uh, I don't tip. You don't tip? No, I don't believe in it. You don't believe in tipping? Do you know what these chicks make? They make shit. Don't give me that. She don't make enough money, she can quit. <laughs> I don't even know a fucking Jew would have the ball to say that. Let me just get this straight. You don't ever tip, huh? I don't tip because society says I have to. 
All right, I mean, I'll tip if somebody really deserves a tip. If they really put forth the effort, I'll give them something extra. But, I mean, it's tipping automatically. Uh, it's for the birds. <laughs> I mean, as far as I'm concerned, they're just doing their job. Hey, this girl was nice. She was okay. I mean, she wasn't anything special. What's special? Take you in the back and suck your dick. <laughs> I'd go over 12% for that. Hey, look, I ordered coffee, right? Now, we've been here a long fucking time. She's only filled my cup three times. I mean, when I order coffee, I want it filled six times. Six times? Well, you know, what if she's too fucking busy? Words too fucking busy shouldn't be in a waitress's vocabulary. Excuse me, Mr. Pink, but the last fucking thing you need is another cup of coffee. <laughs> Jesus Christ, I mean, these ladies aren't starving to death. They make minimum wage. And I used to work minimum wage, and when I did, I wasn't lucky enough to have a job that society deemed tip-worthy. You don't care they'd count on your tips to live? You know what this is? It's the world's smallest violin playing just for the waitresses. You don't have any idea what you're talking about. These people bust their ass. This is a hard job. So it's working at McDonald's, but you don't feel the need to tip them, do you? Well, why not? They're serving you food. But no, society says, don't tip these guys over here, but tip these guys over here. That's bullshit. Waitressing is the number one occupation for female non-college graduates in this country. It's the one job basically any woman can get and make a living on. The reason is because of their tips. Fuck all that. Jesus Christ. I mean, I'm very sorry the government taxes their tips. That's fucked up. That ain't my fault. I mean, it would appear that waitresses are one of the many groups the government fucks in the ass on a regular basis. I mean, if you show me a piece of paper that says the government shouldn't do that, I'll sign it. Put it to a vote, I'll vote for it. But what I won't do is play ball. And it's non-college bullshit you're giving me. I got two words for that. Learn to fucking type. Because if you're expecting me to help out with the rent, you're in for a big fucking surprise. Just convince me. Give me my dollar back. Hey. Leave the dollars there. All right, ramblers, let's get rambling. Wait a minute. Who didn't throw in? Mr. Pink. Mr. Pink? Why not? You don't tip. You don't tip? What do you mean you don't tip? You don't believe in it. Shut up. What do you mean you don't believe in it? Come on, you. Cough off a bucket, cheap bastard. I paid for your goddamn breakfast. All right, since you pay for the breakfast, I'll put in. But normally, I would never do this. Mind what you normally would do. Just cough in your goddamn fuck like everybody else. Thank you. That was the Partridge family's Doesn't Somebody Want to Be Wanted? Followed by Edison Lighthouse's Love Grows Where My Rosemary Goes. As K Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s Weekend just keeps on trucking. The film unexpectedly opens in a diner. Eight L.A. gangsters eat breakfast and discuss literally anything under the sun, save business or crime or anything to do with their upcoming diamond heist. Kind of starts off similar to what our conversations are about in diners, like usually like pop music. <laughs> yeah, Madonna getting fucked by a big dick. That's usually where we start. Well. <laughs> All but the boss, Joe Cabot, played by Lawrence Tierney, and his son, Nice Guy Eddie, played by Chris Penn, use aliases. So we're going to go through this now, even though we don't actually see the scene where they are assigning these names until there's 20 minutes left. But we're right. going to go through this now. Harvey Keitel is Mr. White. He's a veteran. Yes. Not of wars, but a veteran of this life. He's been oh, yeah. around the block. He's a father figure, easygoing and pleasant demeanor. 
He will forge a bit of a bond with Mr. Orange. Tim Roth plays Mr. Orange, mm-hmm. a.k.a. Freddie Newendike. He is the interloper, the cop. That's technically a spoiler, but as will be a theme with discussing this movie, it becomes so a part of you and so in your bones yeah. that I can't even remember a time where I didn't know he was the cop. I don't feel like that was ever a spoiler to me. Okay. Was it to you when you watched it the first time? Yes. I, I didn't know he was a cop. I, I feel like I must not have. Yeah, I can remember not knowing and being like surprised when he gets up and kills. Not to throw out all the spoilers, but Mr. Blonde. Yeah, I don't know. A lot of times I get a little hung up on when we spoil things. I, I don't care with this movie. I, same. Feels like everyone should just know this movie. I, I think so. <laughs> There's probably other movies that you can make the same argument for that we've said we're not going to spoil it until we get there. Well, but, um, yeah. There's other reasons, though. No, I know. Sometimes the spoiler is so fun to build to a certain moment. I really never felt like it was a big reveal. I I agree. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. I certainly don't think of it as a twist movie or anything where you're like, wow, that was a game changer. But I didn't know. This is a movie, like, the first time I watched it, I had no idea where it was heading. That's true. I probably didn't either. My memory is getting bad, but... I knew it was a Tarantino movie. I knew it had this big sort of aura around it. The opening scene in the coffee shop contains subtle foreshadowing about the identity of the rat when Joe demands to know which crook didn't contribute to the tip. Mr. Orange is the one who snitches on Mr. Pink. Yeah, after Mr. Pink going on and on about it. This kind of seems like... I would have told on him, too, just because it was so obnoxious. (laughs) Well, we're going to get to that in a second. And it's one friggin' dollar. I know. Michael Madsen as Mr. Blonde. On the surface... Cool as you like, but it turns out that Mr. Blonde is actually a murderous psychopath. (laughs) We'll talk a little bit more about Mr. Blonde and his true identity in a bit. Steve Buscemi as Mr. Pink. This plus Fargo felt like an arrival, an announcement. For sure. A declaration. Here is the iconic character actor of the 90s. And beyond. Tarantino just liked his look thought he looked like a real criminal <laughs> for sure yeah <laughs> which is a compliment <laughs> i think mr pink is unquestionably the most professional in this entire crew including joe and nice guy eddie yeah he's constantly playing the part of peacekeeper look we had a mission let's stay focused on that there's something that has happened that certainly we need to get to the bottom of but everything's sort of non-personal with him yeah, he has to constantly remind us that he's the most professional, but well, he actually true. is. Yeah, <laughs> Edward Bunker as Mr. Blue. In a brief appearance. At age 17, Edward Bunker, a former career criminal, was the youngest felon to be sent to San Quentin. He was an author and also played cons in other films, Runaway Train from 1985. Oh, Soul Asylum. The Longest Yard in 2005, and Straight Time in 1978. Hell yeah. Which was based on his novel. Oh, I didn't realize that. In addition, he worked as a technical advisor on other films, including Heat from 1995. Sweet. For instance, and we actually mentioned him by name and talked about this because John Voight's character in Heat was based on him. Okay. Well, I'm going back to that episode. I remember this conversation. Did not know this was the guy. Yes. Gotcha. Tarantino actually added the opening scene of the film specifically to give the character of Mr. Blue a chance to speak. Originally, he was the only character without any lines. Mm -hmm. 
and it ends up being one of the most iconic fun scenes in the movie definitely but it is insane to see a guy who looks like edward bunker giving opinions on madonna songs <laughs> and not even necessarily the biggest songs there right. was some deep cut talk going on <laughs> And sometimes that's fun. I know that conventional wisdom would be you need to write individual, unique, distinct, different characters. But there are some writers, Aaron Sorkin's another one. Mm -hmm. There are some others as well, Diablo Cody even. It's kind of fun just to hear everyone talk in their voice. Yeah, yeah. Because their voice is unique enough to make it fun. Right. If you're kind of boring as a writer, then you need to make sure your characters are different. But- if you have a really cool, interesting voice on your own and you just give that to everybody, it can work. It's not always ideal and some people will criticize it, but it can work. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a movie where it works because it's kind of funny to see Mr. Blue <laughs> care about Madonna songs. <laughs> just so bizarre. <laughs> In an interview with Empire Magazine career criminal Edward Bunker stated that the film was unrealistic he would never have considered committing a robbery with five people he didn't know and therefore could not trust. He also commented that it would be extremely foolhardy for the distinctively dressed gang to publicly have breakfast together beforehand. When news of the robbery broke, witnesses would be certain to remember that event. Okay. Which are both good points. Yeah. But I think the one, movie's still fun anyway. Definitely. One practical piece, though, to consider is like you don't know how much any of these dudes are in with Joe. What I've gathered from other movies, sometimes these guys have a very way of being like, you're doing this job. Oh, you mean you're suggesting that they're being forced to do it, even if they think going to have breakfast at the diner is a bad idea? Yeah, yeah, like Joe's not a guy you say no to. Well, I think the question is, is the breakfast at the diner happening right before they do it? Is that what's supposed to be happening? I didn't think so, but... I guess it would make sense that it is since they're all wearing... Yeah, you know what? That makes sense because they're all wearing their outfits already. Would he wear suits multiple days? <laughs> I don't know. In this heat? Well, it seems like the gangsters in Tarantino's L.A. universe do. Yeah. I never really considered it one way or the other because the story itself is nonlinear, so it doesn't seem to matter. It feels to me like it's some days leading up to it, but you but could But then again, why would they all be there? Right. In the morning? I don't know. It seems like it could be. You know, you meet for breakfast before you do the job. Quentin Tarantino plays Mr. Brown. He's really only in three scenes, which is kind of a good thing. I think so. <laughs> Quentin Tarantino was originally going to play Mr. Pink, although he made a point of letting all the other actors audition for the part. When Steve Buscemi came in to read for it, Tarantino told him that he really wanted the part for himself and that the only way Buscemi could possibly wrestle it from him was to do, deliver a killer audition and then that's exactly what happened i think the movie would be considerably worse and probably everything would be different 100 in agree tarantino's yeah. career i don't think this movie catches the same kind of attention at sundance i don't know if miramax ever really buys it he might be more of a footnote if he plays Mr. Yeah. Pink. That's how dramatic of a I difference know. it well, would it be. Well, it seems like there were some of those things, but that one is very serious. But I was telling you, I was listening to some of the Sally Mankey, Quentin Tarantino interviews talking about the editing process with him and everything and how those two like really went to battle a lot. Here's the thing, though. How many times have we done a movie on here where we've talked about all of the little accidents oh, that yeah. lead to something iconic Definitely. and incredible? Yeah. 
And that's what happens. Exactly. And then if you're smart and talented, you will learn right. what you were doing wrong, Definitely. what you could do better, and you will keep improving. And as long as you haven't ruined money. it all with one of these bad ideas. Well, right. I'm saying you get the luck the first right. time. And then the people who don't realize what they need to do better will then flame out. Mm-hmm. And that's probably why their second movies aren't as good. Definitely. Whereas the people who understand what they need to improve upon and do better will take the next step. Now, Tarantino is a unique example because there would have always been talent as a writer. For sure. He'd already sold True Romance. And I think... He probably would have been able to continue to sell other scripts as well. For sure. And maybe then there's another opportunity and it does way better. Possibly. But it is one of those things... Yeah, this guy clearly has talent. I think he was always going to make it, but but not like, as an actor. Well, yeah, right, <laughs> right. Not every idea is a great idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we love Quentin Tarantino, especially as a writer and a director, but never really thought he was a great actor. His best performance is probably Pulp Fiction, and that is, of course, the most problematic. For and sure, we talked yeah. about it at the time. Other than that, I've never really thought he was particularly good in anything. He's okay enough in From Dust Till Dawn. He's fine in From Dust Till Dawn. Like the, I think that part works okay. Right. He um, is actually out of the movie earlier than right. you remember, yeah. and it's not quite a co-lead or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Django Unchained is bizarre. Horrible. Absolutely. Horrible. Yeah. It doesn't ruin the movie, and I still like Django a lot, think, and we'll probably um, do it someday on the show, but terrible. Bo- both his acting parts in Grindhouse, not great. I don't remember him in planet terror right now he's like one of the military dudes in the elevator at one point i think his face all bubbles up and everything but he had some lines before that (laughs) yeah (laughs) anyway Mm -hmm. i think pretty much immediately you know if tarantino's style is intriguing to you or not it's a dizzying mesmerizing opening to the movie guys bullshitting talking like how the audience talks about anything on their mind, the jarring juxtaposition of mundane discussions of pop music in the world of gangsters and crime. For me, seeing it for the first time, it was a total rush. It felt extremely exciting. Reservoir Dogs opened our minds and played around in there with expectations and what we thought we knew about dialogue and cinema. Seeing this plus Clerks in the same time period generally was jarring i had not really seen movies where people talked like how me and my friends talked right that just wasn't normal for film yeah yeah yeah. there was ways that people talked in movies and tv and then there was how people talked in real life and then all of a sudden guys were writing it closer to how we talked in real life and that was exciting to me in the way of man i'd love to write like that i know it was inspiring in the way of making me want to do it that kind of thing which is a very unique experience it's it's not just loving something it's more wanting to make it a part of you in a way and then to put out your own version of it in some sense Mm -hmm. so that just leaves us with joe and nice guy eddie lawrence tierney who i'll always think of as elaine's dad from seinfeld sure was not particularly popular on set. He angered his castmates and frequently forgot his lines. Oh, no. Hard guy to deal with. Tarantino fired him after three days, only to rehire him again shortly. What the producers didn't know was that on a day off from filming, 
during the shoot, Tierney was arrested for allegedly pulling a gun on his nephew. (laughs) (laughs) Seems like a fun uncle to have. The opening conversation concerns Like a Virgin by Madonna. Mm -hmm. Chris Penn, featured prominently in the scene, was Madonna's former brother-in-law. As his older brother, Sean, was married to her for four years. That's right. (laughs) Turns out that Madonna did really enjoy the film, though, despite refuting Tarantino's interpretation of her song. Well, I'm sure. She gave him a copy of her erotica album signed to Quentin. It's not about dick, it's about love, Madonna. There you go. Love it. There's some other things that jump out. We did do the right thing on the program. Mm -hmm. Harvey Keitel has a line similar to the line in Do the Right Thing where he says, shoot me in a dream, you better wake up and apologize. Right. Don't know if that was invented for Do the Right Thing, but I can pretty much guarantee that that's where Tarantino got it. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if it was original to Do the Right Thing or a previous joke, I don't know, but. They talk about K. Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s. I was talking with Matt about The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia being a song by Mama from Mama's Family, Vicki Lawrence. Yeah, a a reference that I should get at this point based on how often you've talked to me about (laughs) Vicki Lawrence. But If you would have had no interest and never commented on it or said anything, it would have been dead by now. It would have just been a show that I showed you one time. It's so bizarre to me that this was something that you had an endless interest in. Just like I had never even heard of this at all. So you had to like ex- not only explain it to me, but then you're like showing it to me. And you look at someone like you don't even know who they are. <laughs> <laughs> it is such a weird show. Yeah. It's like a play that was put on in a high school or something. <laughs> I like it, though. I yeah, think it's funny. So always good to have that vintage hick humor. Yeah. Just <laughs> tying back into whatever we're doing. <laughs> Stephen Wright is the right. the voice of K. Billy. If that's supposed to be the DJ's name, I, I don't guess, know. Yeah. But I'm into that old style radio station stuff, though. That yeah. is up my alley. Where the '70s yeah. survived. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what a tagline! I love it. I don't know. I feel like I grew up. Now I'm talking like as a kid, right? Listening to local radio stations and thinking that people who worked in radio were like rich. <laughs> And then one day I remember there was like a a local radio station where I lived in New York. And I think my dad was just like, oh, yeah, the guy that owns that radio station was hosting trivia at the bar I was at last night. And I was like, oh, really? He's like, yeah, that's his side job. (laughs) Well, DJs only work maybe four hours. That's true. A lot of them. So it's an easy gig to pick up extra cash. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think most don't. I know, I know. By the way, Mr. Pink, waitresses do not make minimum wage. Yeah. It's just an insane argument to make. They make minimum wage. They don't. He comes off completely hateable in this exchange. It's an insane take to have, but even giving it to Mr. Pink was up for debate. I think there are different versions of the script where it was a different guy. Yeah. Not the peripheral ones, not brown or blue, but... Either white or blonde or something. But he switched around some. You of could this have stuff. seen it being a blonde trait. No, I kind of like that. It's not indicative of him being a psycho. Well, that's that true. He yeah, is fine tipping a waitress. <laughs> I like there being contradictions with yeah, that yeah. kind of stuff. But I just think it it works well with it being pink, just because I think that Buscemi is the best at carrying these. That's probably long why it was changed. Yeah, I don't know that for a fact. Like Harvey Keitel is a good actor 
always and in this movie, but Buscemi's bringing the weirdness, like the weird quirkiness to his right. character. The opening credits feature Little Green Bag, famously, but mm-hmm. the song that Tarantino wanted originally was Money by Pink Floyd, oh, wow. which I don't think that he would have been able to afford, although I don't really know because it's not like a ton of Pink Floyd songs really get optioned in anything, so I don't know, Yeah, but it would have been terrible, I think. It would have totally wrong vibe. Yeah, it does seem like that's too slow. Yeah, and too recognizable. And I think Little Green Bag goes a long way in establishing what will yeah, be yeah. his audio I think he aesthetic. More understated. That fits in with his whole oeuvre yeah. that he's created over time. Money by Pink Floyd does not. That seems more Scorsese or something. Yeah. Filmed over 35 days, Reservoir Dogs was truly a shoestring budget affair, not surprisingly. Right. The film's budget was so low that many of the actors were asked to simply bring their own clothing as wardrobe, most notably Chris Penn's track jacket. The signature black suits were provided for free by the designer based on her love for the American crime film genre. Steve Buscemi wore his own black jeans instead of suit pants, and Michael Madsen wore a jacket and pants that came from two different suits. The title for the film, oddly enough, this is something that I've never thought too much about. I never cared, really. I guess I just assumed that it was a crime term or gangster term that Mm -hmm. I wasn't familiar with, but I never even thought about it in that sense. I never thought about it as if, oh, this is something that is real, but I just don't know what it is. Right. I never thought about it at all. I just said it. It was just the name. But the title for the film first came to Quentin Tarantino while visiting a production company and noticing that they had a pile of unsolicited scripts under the label Reservoir Dogs. All those scripts were fighting with each other for attention as dogs trapped in a reservoir tank. The name got stuck in his mind. Apart from this origin, initially told by Tarantino in interviews, in recent years he started to tell another version that occurred via a patron at the now-famous Video Archives. While working there, Tarantino would often recommend little-known titles to customers, and when he suggested Louis Mao's Goodbye Children from 1987, the patron mockingly replied, I don't want to see no Reservoir Dogs. Wow. We have a wide variety of gene picks. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, the title is never actually spoken in the film, and whatever the real origin is remains somewhat unclear. However people often mistakenly say there are no dogs in the film. And that's Hmm. not true because there's a German shepherd. Well, there you go. Take that, people. Monty Hellman was originally tapped to direct the film as Quentin Tarantino was completely unknown. However, when Tarantino managed to sell the screenplay for True Romance for $50,000, he lobbied hard to direct the film himself. Hellman took on an executive producer role instead. I think most people are probably pretty familiar with the the mythology around this time period with Quentin Tarantino, Roger Avery, the yeah. video store, the two scripts that eventually become three with Natural Born right. Killers. Tony Scott directs yep. True Romance in 93. It completely bombs, but it doesn't seem to matter by that point because Reservoir Dogs is such a cool, accepted, awesome yeah. thing. That Pulp Fiction is already inevitable. He's getting a huge cast, including Bruce Willis, who's a huge movie star. 
things are in motion. Oliver Stone then directs Natural Born Killers. However, changes it, I guess, significantly. Him and Tarantino clash. Definitely. Have a huge falling out. Tarantino doesn't really acknowledge that as part of his world anymore, I guess. Whatever. But I don't know. That's quite an exciting time. I'm curious as to what would have happened if Tony Scott would have insisted on Reservoir Dogs instead. Yeah. And Tarantino's first film is True Romance. Would he have been able to handle that? I don't know. That's a lot bigger, yeah. That's probably why he thought Reservoir Dogs was something he needed to hang on to because it's the movie he could make yeah, it's a for that choice. slashed budget right. if he had to. The Clerks version. Yeah. After the opening song and credits, for me, it's one of the all-time jumps forward ever in anything. Mm-hmm. This the is the moment that will always oh, stick yeah. with me from the first time that I saw it. Oh, yeah. You have the upbeat music playing i think little green bag eventually Mm -hmm. gives into another song sort of like pulp fiction but not quite as jarring as the radio change in that right the credits are going but then the music starts fading and you start hearing the screams and when it cuts to tim roth bleeding like a stuck pig in the backseat of a car while harvey keitel is driving right now i'm referring to them by their real names because Mm -hmm. at this point it doesn't even seem like we've been formally introduced yet. We don't know character names, and then all of a sudden we're just thrown into something right. so shocking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Blood everywhere. Yeah, vibrant even red The way that all over the white leather interior. Tim Roth is screaming and, like, changing his voice. Like, it's so jarring. If you said to me, what line of dialogue or delivery of dialogue is the first thing you think of when it comes to this movie, <laughs> it would be the... You're going to be okay, (laughs) (laughs) you know? Yeah, I did put in my notes somewhere coming up about doing the Harvey Keitel impression because the sing-songy talking there is so iconic. It's that and Chris Penn. Yeah, yeah. But you have to have a little bit more talent, so people like Matt and myself are a little afraid to try a Chicago sounding (laughs) accent, whatever voice he's doing. (laughs) The fact that he's saying daddy all the time is so (laughs) That is weird, yeah. I gotta ask daddy. (laughs) What? (laughs) Daddy's gonna be fucking pissed. (laughs) (laughs) In addition to jarring, I would add disorienting, shocking. It's clear that it's going to take a little time before we can even get our bearings. Because of the nonlinear storytelling approach, some information is disseminated at different times. I'm just going to try and keep it all straight, no matter when certain items of interest are actually revealed to us. Hold on, buddy boy. I'm gonna die. Hey. I'm sorry. Give me in. She killed me, man. Who the fucking got that? Hey. Just catch that shit. Right now, you're hurt. You're hurt real fucking bad. But you ain't dying. I'm gonna die. I'm gonna... I... Oh. I was supposed to scare the shit out of me, Larry. I'm gonna die. I know it. Oh, excuse me. I didn't realize you had a degree in medicine. Uh, uh, are you a doctor? Are you a doctor? Answer me, please. Are you a doctor? Huh? Okay. So you admit you don't know what you're talking about. So, if you're through giving me your amateur opinion, 
Slide back and listen to the news. I'm taking you back to the rendezvous. Joe's gonna get you a doctor. The doctor's gonna fix you up. And you're gonna be okay. Now say it. You're gonna be okay. You're gonna be okay. Say the goddamn words. You're gonna be okay. Say the goddamn fucking words. Say it. I'm okay, Larry. Correct. Correct. I'm okay. The men from the opening scene are a crew. Joe, the boss, has put together a little job for them at some point after the breakfast scene, either immediately or in the days that follow. The gangsters carry out the diamond heist. White flees with Orange, who was shot during the escape and is bleeding severely in the back of White's car. I would almost say what happens here is that they're being bonded by blood. Mm -hmm. We have to do a little work on our own to figure out that these two have connected more right. than we actually see in the movie because the movie's 99 minutes. Mm -hmm. But this scene in particular, them escaping together, has bonded them by blood. Definitely. Because there's a big difference between Mr. White and the other criminals. For sure. And Mr. Blonde. And yeah. we'll talk about that after we get into it a little bit more. But Mr. White does have a code. He is a criminal. He is not what you would call a good man. But right. You would almost say decent in a weird way, except if you're a policeman. He seems or like to a policeman. the most noble out of the crew. Right. There is a nobility. Yeah. In a way, the nonlinear storytelling helps make this simple 99-minute story seem like something much more. Plus, having that bloody ruin right up against the goofy diner scene yeah. where you're kind of not sure what this even is, what's happening, and then, holy shit, what the fuck. One of the main characters now is incapacitated and we're 10 minutes into the movie. Of his decision to not show the heist itself, Quentin Tarantino has said that the reason was initially budgetary, but that he had always liked the idea of not showing it and stuck with that idea in order to make the details of the heist undefined. He has said that the technique allows for the realization that the film is, quote, about other things, a similar framework as that of the stage play Glengarry Glen Ross and its film adaptation in which the mentioned robbery is never shown on camera. Tarantino has compared this to the work of a novelist and has said that he wanted the film to be about something that is not seen and that he wanted it to play with a real-time clock as opposed to a movie clock ticking. The real-time aspect of the film is interesting and not something that I paid much attention to initially over the years but has become something I've thought about more after getting more into Christopher Nolan and other filmmakers who work with time because it is an interesting approach if you think about it everything from the moment in the back seat to where you get to at the end is in real time essentially right, right. and it's the flashbacks that change it up but everything else is basically the 40 minutes 50 minutes an hour whatever it is and then the other part of the movie is in different time. That's jumping in different areas and different paces and moving around. But everything else is happening essentially in however long it takes. Mm -hmm. Because as you said, with the Sally Menke stuff, it seems like Tarantino was very interested in the long scenes. And I think that's why is because yeah. he's thinking of it as that's 
time period is just moving. Right. It's moving at the same speed as the viewer is experiencing it, whereas the other stuff is what breaks it up. But that can be frustrating for an editor, but also with a first-time filmmaker who's trying to explain this ridiculous idea, but also maybe doesn't quite have all of the tools yet to pull it off. Yeah, and I think he was very dedicated to his material. But the partnership between him and Menke became such a huge part of his career up until her death, and I think it really impacted him. And I do love his films post Inglorious Bastards, Mm -hmm. of course, but I do think that there is a difference in how they're edited now. I think so. I think that the editing of especially The Hateful Eight would be a lot different. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm not 100% sure about the other ones, but definitely The Hateful Eight, I think, would be different. I think so, too. Because I might mention this later in the notes, but don't you think of The Hateful Eight as sort of a similar story to this in yeah, a lot of ways? for sure. It's the other one that seems like it could be a play. Yes, for sure. Orange and White make it to the rendezvous point, one of Joe's warehouses. Even though Orange is in real rough shape and clearly dying, the plan initially is to wait for Joe because Joe will fix everything. The warehouse scenes were filmed in an unused mortuary filled with coffins, funeral equipment, embalming fluid, and a hearse. Mr. Orange's apartment, which we see in his flashback, was a room on the second floor of the mortuary dressed to look like living quarters. The building has since been demolished. Wow. They paved paradise to put up a parking lot. That's right. (laughs) Mr. Orange at this point sounds like Bobcat Goldthwaite. Yeah, I know. It it is. It's a real. It's a little tough to deal with. It's a real choice with the voice. We'll get more into Tim Roth's performance later. It's sort of like in The Place Beyond the Pines when Ryan Gosling starts robbing those banks and does that crazy tantrum voice. (laughs) I I don't know, man. Is this really the way you want to present yourself? (laughs) Although there is no definitive answer to what Mr. White whispers to Mr. Orange when they're first laying him down, in the French release of the film, he says, you don't want a blowjob, by the way. In the Italian dubbed version, he says, do you want me to give you a hand job too? Because it's after Orange is begging him to right. hold him. Yeah, yeah. And in the Spanish dubbed version, he says, I'll comb your hair so you look handsome. I will say that in the Netflix version, the subtitles were nothing as interesting as any of those lines. Right. It was something like an extra would be whispering when they're in the background and you're not supposed to actually hear their conversation. That's what it seemed like to me. Okay. It was kind of something along the lines of, okay, so now this is what we're going to do. Yeah. Something like that. Just something to make it seem like he was saying something that really wasn't. I don't know. But it is interesting because Roth laughs after he says it. So it does make you think that he is making a joke about holding him and right. maybe some sort of a... No, it makes sense. Gay joke or something, but yeah, I don't know. Orange is begging to be taken to the hospital, but White can't bring himself to do it yet, although he's clearly conflicted. He wants to do it, but he doesn't know if he should. He's also worried because of various tidbits of information that he's accidentally or not so accidentally let out over time. Mr. Pink arrives at the warehouse convinced the job was a setup and that the police had been tipped off and were already there waiting for them. Mm -hmm. Everyone seems to be in immediate agreement on this. Well, Pink's case is pretty strong. Yeah. He says that 
normally when an alarm sounds, you have you're pretty much guaranteed four minutes. But the police were there instantly. Right. But not just one squad car passing by. It was an ambush. Mm-hmm. And then it turned into some sort of chaotic scene that we get the little details of spread out over time. Like a small scale version of heat. Is that a fucking setup or what? <laughs> Shit. Orange got tagged. Good shot. Fuck. Where's the uh, brown? Dead. Oh. How did he die? How the fuck do you think? The cop shot. <laughs> This is bad. So fucking bad. Is it bad? As opposed to good? This is fucked up. This is so fucked up. Somebody fucked us up big time, man. You really think we were set up? Do you even doubt it, man? I don't think we got set up. I know we got set up. I mean, really, seriously, where did all those cops come from, huh? One minute they're not there, and the next minute they're there? I didn't hear any sirens. The alarm went off, okay? When an alarm goes off, you got an average of four minutes response time. Unless a patrol car is cruising that street at that particular moment, you got four minutes before they can realistically respond. And in one minute, there were 17 blue boys out there, all loaded for bear, all knowing exactly what the fuck they were doing. They were all just there. Remember that second wave that showed up in the cars, okay? Those are the ones responding to the alarm, man. But those first motherfuckers, I'm telling you, man, they were there and they were waiting for us. Haven't you fucking thought about this? I haven't had a chance to think. First, I just try to get the fuck out of there. And after we got away, I've just been dealing with him. Better start fucking thinking about it, man, because that's all I'm thinking about, man. I wasn't even gonna come here. I was gonna drive, just drive off, man, because whoever said something knows about this place. They got the cops here waiting for us, man. They could be cops coming here right now. Let's go in the other room. Hey, in there. Prior to the scene showing the colored bottles of detergent, you see two shirts hanging on the wall and a rag in the distance on the floor. These are appropriately in sync with the surnames of the characters in their present states. Mr. White and Mr. Pink are upright and close to each other, corresponding to the two shirt colors, while the orange rag lying in the distance would be in the position of Mm. Mr. Orange in the next room. I was always confused about the layout of this place because when they first go around that corner, the camera completely switches what side you're on. So it makes it seem like they actually went out the other way, Mm -hmm. but it's just where the camera's positioned. But then they're talking about going upstairs. And going to where that bathroom is, which doesn't seem like it's easy to get to. (laughs) But I think the first couple times I saw the movie, I would always think, oh, I thought they did go upstairs because I was confused about where they were. Yeah. I don't know. It, it's kind of a weird. I know. I need to see building. the schematics of it. During the bathroom scene where Mr. White and Mr. Pink are discussing who is alive or dead, and specifically Mr. Blonde, there is a hint that Mr. Blonde is alive. Much like the white and pink shirts and the orange rag, the bathroom contains one other item hinting at a character. Behind Mr. White, when he's doing his hair, there is a yellow sink suggesting Mr. Blonde is also alive. White informs Pink that Brown is dead, while Blue and Blonde are currently MIA. There is also some significant anguish over Blonde's conduct during the robbery. Oh, yeah. White says that Blonde started murdering civilians during the job, transforming into a full-blown psycho killer, 
White even goes so far as to actually use the word psychopath when describing Blonde's behavior. He's furious that Joe, his old friend, would even employ someone like Blonde at all. It's kind of a cool setup because you have Pink, who is very adamant that there's a rat. And he's adamant in a way that White hadn't gotten to yet because his whole he was just like let's get out of fifteen minutes have been so crazy right. But Pink has thought about this and now he keeps saying it and saying it and saying it. But the way that it's constructed is that to the characters psychologically, Orange feels like he's off the table because Mm -hmm. of his injury. Right. He's in such rough shape. There's so much blood. For those of you who haven't seen it, it's ridiculous. So. Even if White knows that Orange wasn't shot by a cop, we don't know that yet. Right. Pink doesn't know that yet because they never say that to him, I don't think. Not yet. It sort of takes Orange off your mind as a suspect right right away because of the injury. That's really it. Yeah. Although Pink, the consummate professional, I feel like he is always like, I know it's not me and that's it. Yeah. That's all I know. Yeah. He does say that, but... He's not putting a finger in the face of Orange, who's laying on the ground, dying. Right. The line where Mr. White tells Mr. Pink, I need you cool, are you cool, was added into the script after a conflict between Lawrence Tierney and Michael Madsen. To break the scuffle and continue shooting, Quentin Tarantino said to Tierney, Larry, I need you cool, are you cool? (laughs) (laughs) I love that Tarantino lives the gimmick. Yeah, I know. (laughs) He's such a dork. <laughs> I love it, though. Yeah. <laughs> the movie contains a lot of references to things that would go on to become parts of the shared universe of Tarantino's films. However, Reservoir Dogs does actually predate his creation of red apple cigarettes, white and pink smoke Chesterfields. At one point, for example, though, there is a Jack Rabbit Slims ad That's, on the radio. Yeah, yeah. Can I uh, borrow one of those Chesterfields? <laughs> famously in true romance mr pink says he shot his way out when things took a turn and we actually get these wild disparate shots of it panicky and rather shocking in the bright los angeles sun i will say it's good what little we see of the heist it's clear that it's better left to imagination right there is a certain amateur quality to any of the potential action sequences Clearly, the budget wasn't where it needed to be, and potentially Tarantino did not have the experience yet to know how to do this stuff. Mm -hmm. But just like not having the shark appear in Jaws due to mechanical difficulties, it ends up making it better in a way because the film really emphasizes different things. This movie is about a code. It's about a code between men. The whole movie is just about Orange telling White the truth at the end of the film. That's really all that matters. Everything else is just like any other gangster movie, heist movie, just told in a nonlinear way, which is cool. Yeah, yeah. And the pop culture references are cool, too. And that definitely separates Tarantino from your normal filmmakers, your normal writers, but this code between men is what makes it stand out and be this incredible film. And by having the heist take up God knows how much time in the middle of this movie, it becomes about the heist just like any other heist movie. Uh And so you really understand how storytelling can change, how 
if you emphasize different things, things that you thought were superfluous, things that didn't matter, things that were the extra, if you will, and make it about that stuff, you have a whole new world of possibilities as to how to tell a story. We're hearing an alarm blaring, women screaming, all kinds of different stuff. I do like the shocking change from the dim interior of the warehouse to when they do show the stuff from the crime because then you're like oh shit it's so bright out right right the budget wouldn't cover police assistance for traffic control so in the scene where steve Yusemi forces a woman out of her car and drives off in it he could only do so when the traffic lights were green (laughs) (laughs) careful timing the cops did not show up after the alarm went off right the cops didn't show up until after mr blunt started shooting everybody as soon as I heard the alarm, I saw the no, cops. Man, I'm telling you, it wasn't that soon, okay? They didn't, they didn't let their presence be known until after Mr. Blonde became a madman, all right? I'm not saying they weren't there. I'm saying they were there. But they didn't make a move until after Mr. Blonde started shooting everybody. I mean, that's how I know we were set up. <sighs> Come on, Mr. White. I mean, you can, you can, you can see look, that. Look, look, enough of this Mr. White shit. Oh, wait, 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 man. Don't, don't tell me your fucking name, man. I don't want to know it. Jesus Christ, I ain't going to tell you mine. You're right, this is bad. How did you get out? Shot my way out. Everybody started shooting, so I blasted my way out of there. Move it! Get out of the way! Get the fuck out of the way! Pink asks, did you kill anybody? White says, a few cops. No real people? No, just cops. (laughs) Pink confirms that he managed to secure the loot, stashing the diamonds somewhere nearby. Yeah, much to the joy of Mr. White. Well, what is it all for? Totally. If brown and potentially blue and maybe even blonde are all dead, what was it all for? I think it's a good moment with his character because I think right up until that, it sort of feels like it's become about something else for him i think it's now a hundred percent about trying to keep orange alive oh yeah for sure but then we have this sort of reminder that's what i meant when i said they were bonded by blood because he starts to act as if everything now depends on his relationship with orange and him believing orange and in a weird way it connects back to when we were talking about fanatics having the secret doubt that's right that's right he kind of gets himself into this position where he can't be wrong I know. because he's done everything he's he murdered everything his on the line long time yeah. friend by the end 
for the moment, even though the situation is fucked and suspicions are high, it feels like maybe White will bond with Pink like he did with Orange. Of course, the positivity will be short-lived. And then suddenly we're in the past. White, dressed casually, enjoying a cocktail, is in Joe's office, conversing with his old chum. In Mr. White's flashback, Joe asks him about a girl named Alabama. This is a reference to Patricia Arquette's character from True Romance. Although the conversation makes it seem like it's not her. Well. Yeah. Quentin Tarantino has stated that he originally intended this character to meet up with Mr. White and to become partners in crime. When True Romance was released, the ending was changed, and this backstory became inconsistent. Alabama never went on to meet Mr. White. Instead, she went to Mexico with one-eyed Clarence and their baby Elvis. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But you know how he likes to do things out of order. So the fact that True Romance was released after meant nothing. He was going to leave it so that Clarence was dead in True Romance. And then after that is when she becomes the Alabama that they're yep. talking about. And then even more time would have gone by. The timing never would have made. It would have been like Friday the 13th time frames. It doesn't make any sense, <laughs> yeah. but whatever. I think that in his mind, these stories, even though there is technology in them, they happen out of time. So theoretically, this could be taking place 10 years after True Romance. It doesn't matter. right? But it is sort of a hard concept to buy into. Yeah, yeah. We end up seeing personalized flashbacks to some of the people involved in the heist, some of the recruitment. There's not really much to gain out of the Mr. White one, other than he goes back a long way with the Cabot family. Back in the present, nerves are starting to fray. White and Pink argue over what to do and who to trust and over whether to get medical attention for Orange, who, by this point, has passed out. White told Orange his first name and where he was from, which White then mentions to Pink that he did this, infuriating Pink. Mm-hmm. Because anything that happens gets you one step closer to toppling the whole thing. I do kind of get that, even though we never learn Mr. Pink's true identity. If you start toppling one and then another one, and then uh-huh. you might get to Joe, you might get to Nice Guy Eddie, and then they'd have everybody. I get it. But he's barking up the wrong tree if he thinks he's going to physically get into it with Mr. White. No kidding. (laughs) Kind of an embarrassing showing how (laughs) fast Mr. White knocks him down and he starts kicking him. (laughs) (laughs) Their argument is building and building, and that's really all the movie is. A lot of talking, a lot of tension building, a lot of fighting going back and forth. There is a very DIY quality to the production, especially in some of these scenes. However, it is kind of irrelevant thanks to the dialogue and the acting. Yeah. It almost doesn't even matter. You could tell me that this was filmed on a stage as a play. And the pace of it, too. They really keep it moving. And I would think, okay, it's a play. Who cares? Like, it's incredible. It doesn't matter what it is. No, I know. I was thinking that watching it this time. Like, if they told me they were doing a play of this, I would go see it. Oh, for sure, yeah. Eventually, the argument builds until White and Pink draw guns on each other. It's a pretty cool, iconic shot. The yeah. pull away slowly, and then you realize... I know, that part's awesome. Mr. Blonde is standing there. They only stand down when they see that Mr. Blonde has arrived. Drinking like a, a fast food fountain drink. Well, it's not just any fast food drink. The yeah. soft drink cup that Mr. Blonde is drinking from is from Big Kahuna Burger. While it displays no logo, the distinctive narrow red diagonal stripes which vary in width are the giveaway Mm -hmm. 
This same cut pattern is seen in a number of subsequent Tarantino films, including, of course, Pulp Fiction, and in the TV show From Dusk Till Dawn, the series, Okay, where we see an actual restaurant, the Station Grill in Austin, Texas, which was dressed to look like a big kahuna burger. So there you have it. Love it. Even Blonde just having the cup is infuriating, especially to White. He's just way too casual. His energy yeah. is way different from the other guys who are so tense now and on the verge of killing each other. And then this asshole comes in with sunglasses after the shit he pulled in the yeah, I know. diamond place. He's wearing sunglasses. He's not answering direct questions, which is always infuriating. Yeah. <laughs> it actually drives me so nuts. Even seeing it in a movie, I start getting upset. Yeah. <laughs> Just like- answer. <laughs> Really getting under White's skin. For sure. White, in a lot of ways, does feel like the de facto leader in the absence of Joe. Mm-hmm. He's the, the seasoned vet. These two get into it. Real heated argument. It's your fucking fault we're in this trouble. What's this guy's problem? What's my problem? Yeah, I got a fucking problem. I got a big fucking problem. With any trick you have a madman, I must get to be shot. What the fuck are you talking about? That fucking shooting spree! In the store, remember? Oh, fuck them. They set off the alarm. They deserve what they got. You almost killed me! Asshole! If I know what kind of guy you were, I never would have agreed to work with you. <clears throat> are you gonna bark all day, little doggy? Or are you gonna bite? I'm sorry, I didn't catch it. Would you repeat it? Are you going to bark all day, little doggy? Or are you going to bite? Oh, Christ. Hey, look, you two assholes. Calm the fuck down. Hey, come on. What what are we on a playground here, huh? Am I the only professional? Fucking guys who act like a bunch of fucking niggers, man. You working niggers, huh? Just like you two. Always saying they're going to kill each other. You said yourself you thought about taking him out. Fucking said that. Yeah, I did, okay? I did. But that was then. Right now, this guy is the only one I completely trust. It's fucking homicidal to be working with the cops. You taking his side? No! Fuck sides, man! What we need here is a little solidarity. Somebody's sticking a red-hot poker up our ass. I want to know whose name's on the handle. <sighs> Fuck. Look, I know I'm no piece of shit. I'm pretty sure you're okay. And I'm fucking positive you're on the level. <sighs> Let's try and figure out who the bad guy is, all right? Wow. (laughs) That was really exciting. (laughs) I bet you're a big Lee Marvin fan, aren't you? (laughs) Yeah, me too. I love that guy. My heart's beating so fast, I'm about to have a heart attack here. Huh? I got something outside that, uh... I'd like to show you guys, so follow me. Follow you? Where? To my car. Would you forget your french fries to go with the soda? No, I had them already. Yeah? I got something I think you might want to see, though. It's a big surprise. I'm sure you'll like it. Come on. There's a shitload of tension amongst the survivors of the crew, but Orange now is completely out of it. Pink remains determined to stay professional. White and Blonde are at each other's throats, with White furious over Blonde's behavior during the heist. However, Blonde's murderous insanity means that there is no way that he's the cop, 
so that makes him cool with Pink. White still wants to take Orange for medical attention. Pink is reluctant, especially since he knows that Orange knows White's real name. Blonde says no way. He says he talked to Nice Guy Eddie and that Eddie is on his way down now, which seems to pacify White and Pink for the moment. Oh, yeah. Everything's going to be all right. Eddie's on the way. I think doing the stuff in the warehouse in real time is a little disorienting to a viewer because it feels like if this situation was this wild and out of control, that Nice Guy Eddie and Joe would be on the scene so much faster. Yeah. But you're not thinking of it as the scenes that we're seeing in the warehouse are actually in real time. Yeah, and it's... And not in movie time. So it literally is about the appropriate Mm -hmm. amount of time for these guys to get there. But it feels longer because you're used to movie time. But it is an interesting technique. And I think it works well for the blonde character because there's so much confusion in the aftermath of what's happened that him saying, yeah, I talked to Eddie, he's on his way down, it definitely like brings a calm that hadn't been there. Yeah. And it's weird that it comes from this dude, but it works. Yeah, which leads me into my next talking point, which is how different this movie would be in an actual cell phone era. I know that Nice Guy Eddie has a, a brick cell phone, but it's not the era where everyone's right. carrying them around. He's got the it's Zach Morris phone. that thing. Yeah. If you make this movie in the cell phone era, a lot of these moments hit different. Blonde coming in with an ace card to calm everyone down doesn't work in the cell phone era. Because you have to think of it in a way that in 1992, talking to Nice Guy Eddie in that time period between a botched heist and getting to the warehouse, the meeting point, would have been a one in a thousand seeming feeling thing. Mm -hmm. Because no one had cell phones. What are the chances you're going to have that opportunity to talk to one of the authority figures in your little gang? Right. That's almost no chance of that happening. So he did manage to talk to him. I don't know if there was a payphone involved. We never see Mr. Blonde with a cell phone, but whatever. Yeah. He talks to him, a rarity in this kind of circumstance right. in 1992. And so, yeah, like you said, he comes in with this calming fact to give everyone, to calm everyone down. And I think that's one of the infinite things that feels different in a cell phone version of Definitely. this movie. Yeah. I think that this movie in present times is not as good it's not as interesting and there's a lot of media that's like that seinfeld is like that oh yeah half of the episodes of seinfeld are solved all, by of, cell phones. all of the yeah. jokes all of the misunderstandings are gone and yeah i'm not saying that people can't adapt i'm not saying that larry david or quentin tarantino can't write different things and make them good but this particular story would need a lot of work to mm-hmm. be different enough with I think cell phones are that big of a thing for this movie. Because even the concept of having a rendezvous point like that would be different. I think just everything would be different. I've already touched on it a little bit. I think it needs to be said. There is some wild racial dialogue in this movie. Definitely. This is a world where these are shitbag people. They're criminals. They're gangsters. I do honestly believe that Tarantino is just trying to depict these people in a way that he thinks is realistic. Definitely. He's also emulating all of the exploitation totally. films of his youth. Yeah, I do think that you have to th- consider these things. We're not in a an age of nuance or intent or any of those things. And I do think that, understandably, in our current culture and with how things are now, I get that 
this movie with those specific lines, some of them would not happen and should not happen, which is a weird thing to say. But I think that culturally we probably have become less mature. And now I don't think that we should probably have these things just so casually out there for people to misinterpret, which is a different stance than I probably would have said before. But having a white filmmaker in his first film out of nowhere, Mm -hmm put lines like this in there you know the ones i'm talking about i'm not going to repeat any of them or anything like right right that's not happening not a first time filmmaker no fucking way is that going to happen not a white filmmaker no way if it's a movie though that costs a million dollars and barely makes a million dollars i mean i could see that scenario happening it's not getting any marketing or anything a million dollars in 1992 would be more now true I guess it depends on who's providing the money. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what the source is. Well, you, I'm just saying No, I get it. It paid yeah. off with Tarantino. Right. And I'm saying that a lot of times with these artists, I do believe that their intent is pure. But I just don't know if people have that kind of faith now. Agreed. To take that kind of a chance with a first time filmmaker to be like, Yeah, okay, these lines are fine to have it. Yeah, there. right. I think it would be run past someone's desk and they would be like, What the fuck? We're not, we're not doing were, this. You yeah. Remember that You're crazy. check we just wrote yeah. you? Ripping it up. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> no way. And I'm saying that because of a certain immaturity in our culture now, it's probably for the best, I guess, is yeah, the way I, I want to so. phrase that. Yeah. I'm never for censoring truly, but with the way that you see a lot of these things misappropriated yeah. and, and misinterpreted and taken on, you're kind of like, it, it might be better if we just chilled until we can calm back down as a society Probably. for some of this shit. <laughs> but the coup de gras comes when Blonde tells White and Pink he has a surprise for them outside that they're going to like. Mr. Blonde's Cadillac Coupe de Ville belonged to Michael Madsen because the budget wasn't big enough to rent a car for the character, This same car was also used in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood by Rick Dalton. How about that? I think they actually sold it after that, and it only went for like $58,000, something like that. You could have had it, Matt. Yeah, I know. That would actually be awesome if you drove around in a Cadillac Coupe de Ville. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That would be unbelievable. Totally. It would be by far the coolest thing you've ever done. Absolutely. (laughs) It's not really believable for my character, I don't think. Yeah. Imagine parking that in the garage. I think that would be a move. Well, Squ- not that yeah. you work there anymore, yeah. but if you had to drive to that <laughs> garage in Station Square. Well, I, I, you know, I parking it on my street where we'd clearly be hit <laughs> by other cars all the time. Before the audience sees the contents of Mr. Blonde's trunk, the camera looks up at Mr. White, Mr. Blonde, and Mr. Pink from inside the trunk that became a staple of Tarantino's material, yes. that upshot. Right. In the trunk of his Cadillac, Mr. Blonde has brought with him a very much alive and intact kidnapped policeman played by Kirk Boltz. I do find White and Pink's reactions to this to be very funny. Yeah. Because you're thinking that maybe (laughs) they're going to come to the senses, they're going to be the rational ones, and they're going to be like, oh, no, you are a psycho. What the fuck is wrong with you? Why would you do this? But no, they laugh and think it's great. Yeah. (laughs) It's so wild. Imagine this was on the news. That there was a robbery and that the people took a policeman hostage. Yeah, yeah. This would be one of the biggest stories maybe ever. I know. On In terms of cable news channels trying to follow it. There would be helicopters all and over the these, city. these guys were like seasoned criminals, they would be like, this is not the type of attention that we want. This just became the biggest crime right. in America. They're number one on America's Most Wanted. Yeah. This is their names would be infamous. They would be names that you would know. Right. Like that level of criminal. No more low profile. It's insane. 
I get that it's interesting and cool for a movie because I can't really think of a mainstream movie that did something this audacious like that. Yeah. But wow. <laughs> it is a move. Trying to imagine that in a real, actual world is insane. Mm-hmm. According to an interview on the DVD, Michael Madsen says that Kirk Baltz asked to ride in his trunk to experience what it was really like. Madsen agreed, but decided as he went along that this was time for his own character development. So he drove down a long alley with potholes and then a Taco Bell drive through before taking Baltz back to the parking lot and letting him out. Okay. <laughs> I've heard a few audio commentaries with Michael Madsen. Sometimes I think he's a little open with stories that... Maybe he shouldn't be. Would, ...would potentially get you canceled yeah. these days. As the three gangsters pull the cop out of the vehicle, we see Mr. Blonde's origin story next. Sometime earlier, we see Blonde meet with Joe and his son, Nice Guy Eddie, with Blonde just having completed a four-year jail sentence... As a reward for keeping his mouth shut and never giving Joe's name to the authorities in exchange for a lighter sentence, they offer Blonde a no-show job. <laughs> By the way. Which sounds great. My dream. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but no, it's not good enough. Not enough. I need to do some real work. Blonde is grateful but insists he wants to get back to quote-unquote real work, and they recruit him for the heist. In the first scene of the Mr. Blonde chapter when Vic Vega is meeting with Joe and nice guy Eddie, he states that his parole officer is Seymour Scagnetti. This character may be related to the character Jack Scagnetti, the detective in Natural Born Killers, yeah. which was also scripted by Tarantino. And this is the conversation where we learn that Mr. Blonde's true identity is Vic Vega. This is the same surname as Vincent, from Pulp Fiction, played by John Travolta. Of course. Tarantino has revealed that Vic and Vincent are brothers. He also intended to do a prequel to both films called Double V Vega, Mm -hmm. which would star the Vega brothers, but Madsen and Travolta eventually got too old to reprise their roles. Doesn't it always seem like when he starts getting into the expanded universe stuff that you're like, this seems like it would be a disaster? <laughs> well, he he ultimately abandoned it, and he abandons a Just lot like of those all of ideas. Them. Yeah. That would be funny, though, if he announced that his last film, instead of this movie critic script that is apparently happening, mm-hmm. if his last movie was instead going to be the Vega Brothers movie, and he was going to do the Irishman-type de-aging. Yeah. <laughs> to Madsen and Travolta, right. but they were going to keep Madsen's 2023 voice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. The whole scene with Toothpick Vic, as they call him, and mm-hmm. Nice Guy Eddie, with the wrestling and the prelude much, to the yeah. wrestling, it's so bizarre, but it's also kind of cool. Yeah. Because not the act of doing that with someone it's not cool but the way that it's <laughs> shot and you can see them getting ready and the way that they act that scene out where they're still talking very casually but they start taking off their jewelry and watches and they're yeah, right. moving There's the chair and then they all of a sudden they're yeah. just doing it all in one take yeah. one long take it's very cool definitely it's different from how a lot of other movies would probably present something like that if you gave different directors that same scene I just don't think it would end up looking like that. It It's done in a really cool way. For sure. The language in this part is insane. Yeah. The semen being pumped into assholes. Very graphic, yes. 
even for Tarantino, this scene is wild. Definitely. Trying to piece together all of these business relationships. You have Blonde obviously working with the Cabots for years, being willing to do this jail sentence for them. But then we know that White goes way back with them as well. He seems really close with Joe. We don't know about Pink because he never gets a flashback story, so I have no idea. Mm -hmm. Who are Blue and Brown? They seem so random. Brown is so embarrassing. There's no way he would be in Joe's crew. I know. With his fucking terrible soul patch. (laughs) Give me a break. (laughs) Just killed immediately, which is what happens. How do these guys all not know each other, though? That's weird to me. If Blonde and White both go way back with Joe... How do they not know each other? I know. I don't understand this. It's actually Nice Guy Eddie's idea to use Toothpick Vic for the job. He's the one that suggests it. If you start peeling away at the layers, there's definitely some weirdness. Like, why does Joe assemble this crew of all people that don't know each other? Why is that important to it? Well, it's part of not getting caught. They can't yeah. tell on each other. I know, but <laughs> it seems like it's a job that he wants to be able to rely on the people doing it. That actually does fit in with what we're talking about right now with yeah. this being Nice Guy Eddie's idea because Joe says that usually he doesn't use his guys for right. jobs like this, but then you're wondering, well, okay, well, then who's Mr. White? I know. And then you're thinking, okay, well, he's from Milwaukee, so maybe he's just a guy that they know. He a long-time associate, guy. but he's not tied well, in with the current. He's just a thief that he's working yeah, with Yeah, and he's just past. not tied in with the current L.A. operation. Yeah. Yeah. But they never explain any of this, so you just right. kind of have to figure that all out. It's kind of weird. Back in the present, White and Pink beat the cop, a man named Marvin Nash, for information, potentially the identity of the rat. Nice guy Eddie is en route, talking on an early, enormous Zach Morris cell phone. Definitely. There's an orange balloon. Talking to Dove? Who, yeah, talking whoever to Dove a guy is. Named Dove. Did you see the orange balloon? I did, yeah. Apparently... It is not foreshadowing who the rat is. Oh, wow. It was just random. Okay. <laughs> That's according to Tarantino. Yeah. I don't know. That very much reminded me of like a Breaking Bad type thing. Yeah. Like they were always working like colors into the shots and everything that were supposed to be meaningful. And that sequence very much reminds me of that. Well, giving all of the characters color aliases really helps for well, yeah. planning little things <laughs> here and there. <laughs> it makes it a lot easier. I love the staging and, and choreography of all these different little scenes. Yes, there is definitely some amateur vibes to it. Mm-hmm. It sounds a little echoey sometimes. It sounds like they're on a stage or something. But Yeah, it's kind of boomy. I do like where the characters are standing. I do like when the camera moves and who it's focused on. I also think it's very strange that Chris Penn keeps saying daddy. <laughs> <laughs> The voice is straight perfection. Sam's hot car lot. (laughs) Just saying these weird things. (laughs) I can't believe it's been almost 20 years since he died. That's so crazy. He was only 40 years old. I know. I'm basically 40 years old. Well. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Similar trajectory, maybe. Wow. All right. That might be your best material ever on the phone. (laughs) (laughs) Eddie arrives at the warehouse and takes White and Pink to ditch some of the getaway cars and also to retrieve the diamonds wherever he stashed them. 
This leaves Blonde in charge of the kidnapped cop Marvin, who is tied to a chair, and the still passed out Mr. Orange. I do love that these fucking clown criminals start tattling on each other as soon as Eddie comes into the warehouse. Yeah, I know. They're running around saying all these <laughs> He's a psychopath. It's so pathetic. Yeah. Eddie's perspective has got to be completely strange because there's clearly an influence of his pre-existing relationship with Blonde. Blonde. Yeah. But he knows his dad has a pre-existing relationship with White, so he doesn't really know what the fuck is going on. He's like, oh, we lost Orange. (laughs) Not that broken up about it. (laughs) Orange is dead? Yeah. Eddie is the one who's adamant that there was no setup, and this is what makes sense. When you go back and you start peeling back how this all happened, when you listen to how Orange is eventually put into the crew, it is through Eddie. It all basically mm. comes through him. Right. So, of course, he's going to be adamant that there was no rat because yeah. it would have to fall back on him probably. Uh-huh. Here's the news. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think White says here's the news earlier too. Don't two characters say that phrase? Uh, yeah, in the that movie? seems right. Just like Prisoners, Reservoir Dogs has an ultra-violent centerpiece that grabs the headlines and becomes the focal point. Yeah, it's on the cover of the 4K. <laughs> yeah, with that weird plastic sleeve thing with the right. ear on it. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to contextualize it because movie violence and the special effects which portray the violence continue to change and evolve. But this torture sequence was definitely a pop culture moment, even if it didn't get truly famous until post-pulp fiction. But this was definitely a thing. The ear scene was something that people knew about. You want to know something really weird about me in this movie? (laughs) Okay. So there was a long time between my first viewing and my second viewing. And most of my memory of this scene was the same. But I had it in my head that as... Madsen leaves in the middle of this and then comes back in with a chainsaw (laughs) and was going to like hack this guy up with a chainsaw and that's when he shot. Okay, so maybe you conflated the Scarface scene? I guess, yeah. I don't know. It's so weird to me that that got in my head that that's where this went. I had it mostly right in memory, but I don't know. I made something up. (laughs) Yeah, I think that has happened to me a few times. Sometimes with movies or TV shows, but also with other things, memories. Right. And then someone will be like, that isn't what happened. Or maybe like I had got it in my head that that's where like the scene was going, extreme torture Yeah, sometimes when you're watching it and your mind is guessing the next thing that happens, in that moment you forget that you guessed it, Yeah. but then later it sort of resurfaces and then becomes the thing that happens. Right. I don't know. Yep. Alone at last. Guess what? I think I'm parked in the red zone. (laughs) Now, where were we? I told you I don't know anything about any fucking setup. Mm -hmm. I've been on the force for only eight months. They don't tell me anything. (sighs) Nobody tells me shit. You can torture me all you want. Torture you, that's a good... That's a good idea. I like that one. Yeah. 
Sounds Even fun. your boss said there wasn't a setup. My what? Your boss. Excuse me, pal. One thing I want to make clear to you. I don't have a boss. Nobody tells me what to do. You understand? You hear what I say, you son of a bitch? All right, all right, all right. You don't have a boss. All right. Get the fucking shit Look it, I'm not gonna bullshit you, okay? I don't really give a good fuck what you know or don't know. But I'm gonna torture you anyway. Regardless, not to get information. It's amusing uh, to me to torture a cop. You can say anything you want, because I've heard it all before. All you can do is pray for a quick death. Which you ain't gonna get. in the K. Billy's super sounds of the 70s? It's my personal favorite. Joe Egan and Jerry Rafferty were a duo known as Steeler's Wheel when they recorded this Dylan-esque pop bubblegum favorite from April of 1974. That reached up to number five as K. Billy Super Sounds of the 70s continues. Well, I don't know why I came tonight. I got the feeling of something right. I'm so scared because I fall off my chair.
What's the matter? Don't do this. Please. Did that burn a little Don't. bit? Don't. Don't. Stop. Please. Stop. Just stop. 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 Just talk to me for a minute. Don't. Please. Don't. Don't burn me, please. Look. I'm begging you. I don't know anything about any of you fucking guys. I'm not going to say anything. Y'all through? Please. Look, I got a little kid going now. Please. Y'all done? Don't! Don't! Fire scare Don't fight! Alone with the cop, Mr. Blonde goes to work. Marvin Nash holds up to questioning and denies having any knowledge, but Blonde ignores him and resumes the torture, slicing off Nash's ear with a straight razor. While stuck in the middle with you plays on the yes. radio, a lot of things to unpack here. First of all, it's always mind blowing to me. Maybe not now because I've finally accepted it that "Stuck in the Middle with You" is not a Bob Dylan song. I think when I was younger, I just decided hmm. that that was the case. Okay. And Stephen Wright even says the Dylan esque, yeah, yeah, when he's introducing the song in the movie. But the voice on the track is very Dylan. Esque, and True. I think I just decided at some point that it was Bob Dylan, probably when I was in high school or something, and that was the way it was for a long time. And then you re- keep re- being reminded that it's not, and then forgetting. Mm-hmm. I think I'm at the point where I know that it's not. Okay, but it is infuriating. It's yeah. an infuriating song. All right. <laughs> Evidently, they did film two different versions of this scene. One with a lot more blood that would spray out from a tube but the two actors primarily involved Baltz and Madsen seem to have differing accounts of it with Baltz saying that the other version that we don't see was much worse but Madsen saying that the version that used the blood looked silly and ridiculous and not scary or not real it's actually better I think I think having blood just come spraying out almost doesn't fit with this movie for some reason even though there's a ton of blood in it I don't know. Maybe I'm just so used to seeing it the way it is, but I, I think it it works exactly the way it needs to work. What was your initial reaction to this violence? I was definitely like squeamish to it. Are we too desensitized now? And by now, I mean even when I saw this movie for the first time, because Probably, yeah. I was reading how people were reacting to this, and I did not react like that at all. Oh, people were really having a hard time with this? Famed makeup effect artist Rick Baker walked out. Wes Craven walked out. Wow. I have Baker s- said it was a compliment. I think Craven didn't like the nature of the violence, even though he's made very violent movies. Yeah, yeah. He feels like he's doing some sort of commentary, whereas he felt like, like this was moralless or something. Yeah, maybe. And I can see that, but I got to tell you, this pales in comparison to things that I've seen in cinema. Like but in were they made after this? Probably, yeah. Well, that's what I mean. I think this we've become bar. desensitized. Yeah. Because I never had a reaction, and I'm talking even when I saw it in 99, 2000, 2000, when right. I, whenever that was. I don't know. Yeah, you're right. Like I said, I think I was squeamish to it, but it was not something that was like, shut it off. <laughs> you were George C. Or the, or like Or even something that stuck <laughs> with me after the viewing. I've definitely seen scenes yeah. that I was like, what the fuck? It really stuck with me. Not here. 
I think the thing that does separate it from some movie violence is the fact that Mr. Blonde reiterates the fact that he doesn't care about finding out about any yeah, information, yeah. and he actually duct tapes the cop's mouth. Right. <laughs> it's pure sadism. Oh, yeah. It's not for information. And you have to remember, pre-Pulp Fiction, trying to imagine that, trying to see this first, see this in 92, I think the scene probably would have had... A punch? Yeah. yeah. I, I think it would have had a lot more power back then. To avoid alienating the film's backers, producer Lawrence Bender had the tamer scenes shot first so that the dailies would strengthen the backers' confidence before getting to the nasty, violent material. Quentin Tarantino had to fight Miramax boss Harvey Weinstein to keep the torture scene in the film. As Weinstein felt it would have a serious negative effect on audiences, Tarantino stood his ground and Weinstein ultimately relented. Weinstein with his yeah, his notes cutting terrible things yeah. in movies. Is Every time insane. you say one of these, it's a bad idea. Well, he was always about trying to make things shorter or take out anything that would ruin box well, office yeah. potential. In 2014, Tarantino revealed in an interview that the entire soundtrack budget was spent on securing Stuck in the Middle with You for the film. Tarantino was content with having no other music in the film as long as he could use that song. The other songs were secured thanks to the producers managing to make a record deal for the soundtrack. Tarantino and the producers were well aware that the plan might not have worked out at all, Mm. but he was content with just getting that one song. Wow. The backup song, I believe, was Ballroom Blitz. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) In case you were wondering if there was any fallback. But I think the thing that people recognized the most and and will remember the most is this juxtaposing of the extreme violence with the innocuous carefree and even nostalgia inducing pop music and that fits in with the pop culture discussions of the characters it's in a new and exciting breed of crime film robert kurtzman did the special makeup effects for free on the condition that quentin tarantino wrote a script for From Dusk Till Dawn, based on a story by Kurtzman. Mm. So there you go. There you go. And then Tarantino would end up acting in the movie as well. Of course. So he giveth Famously. and taketh away. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I, it's not, he doesn't bother me that much as an no. actor. We're doing a bit, kind of. <laughs> well, there's some truth. In every joke, there's a kernel of truth. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes a larger kernel than others. <laughs> yeah, like, Matt, you're terrible. Yeah. Please shut up. I'm joking. <laughs> Do you remember the song Scooby Snacks by Fun Loving Criminals? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't, not by name. There was some Reservoir Dogs samples in that song. Okay. It was a song that got a little bit of 90s alt-rock radio airplay. Yeah. And may, probably a little MTV play as well. I'm adding it to my uh, Apple Music now, so I'll listen to it. It's a pretty fun song. Pretty okay. catchy. But yeah, there's a couple of audio clips from Reservoir Dogs in that song, and I remember hearing that song on the radio plenty of times before ever seeing Reservoir Dogs, having no clue what this was. Right. It sounded nuts, because it was people yelling, and then (laughs) it sounded like they were hitting each other, but then I realized it was the scene where Pink is just punching the wall or whatever after (laughs) Kaitel's like, are you cool? Yeah. And he like punches something. Yeah, I'm cool. Blonde then douses Nash in gasoline and is preparing to set the man on fire when Orange shockingly awakens and shoots Blonde dead. 
He then reveals to Nash that he is the undercover police officer in the crew and that the rest of the police will arrive when Joe shows his face at the warehouse. Uh-huh. This is a pretty cool sequence for a lot of reasons. Something that I love, and a lot of movies do this, but I love it, when the soundtrack is something in the movie. So Mr. Blonde turns on the radio, now we're hearing Stuck in the Middle with You. So when he goes outside to get the gas, we don't hear the song anymore because the song is on the radio back inside the warehouse. Yeah, yeah. I love that. I also love him walking outside and you realizing it's a normal sunny day. Yeah. There's people around. Feels like maybe a weekday. I know. <laughs> People are just living their lives. Yes. <laughs> I think at some point we do have to acknowledge the blood loss. It is absurd. There's I don't no know way. if there's any way he could remain conscious. He would probably be dead. I and know. if not dead, unable to wake up. It's and a bloodbath. But you kind of accept it. And they did have some measures taken to make some of it realistic. We'll talk about that more towards the end. But. I just don't think there's any way he could be awake, if even alive. I would assume you would probably be dead, but if not... Unconscious. Comatose. But yeah, he definitely didn't seem like he had this in him. It actually makes me go down a road of like, has he been playing the century up (laughs) despite (laughs) the blood loss? This is quite a recovery, albeit brief, but... I I don't know. I think that... He may have been playing possum a little bit once Blonde showed up because he saw how Blonde acted during the robbery, mm-hmm. so he doesn't know what's going on. But I think it's he's awake, and then there's a surge of adrenaline because he knows yeah. he has to save his fellow cop. But, yeah, okay, Well, it, do you reach a point with these things where you know a movie too well? Because, like I said, I can't even remember Cops just like not knowing Orange was the cop. You couldn't have shot him? Before he cut my ear off? Well, you might not have been awake yet. (laughs) You can distinctly remember a time where you didn't know. I just remember my first viewing of the movie, and I didn't. Did you know that Kevin Spacey was the killer in Seven? Uh, I think I did, yeah. Yeah, that's another one where I feel like I just always knew that. Mm -hmm. This Spoiler alert for another movie with Kevin Spacey. Skip ahead. Same with Usual Suspects. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, knew that I, I think too. the same. It seems like there's certain things you just kind of know. I don't know. And, and this one was one where it never even seemed like a big reveal to me. But maybe I'm wrong. Well, again, though, I never felt like, oh, this is like this big twist. But well, obviously I, it had to be one of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't a shock, I guess, but I didn't know. The twist was it was Pamela Anderson's character from Barbed Wire, Barb Wire, who set them up. <laughs> that would have been wild. I want to see that movie. So, yeah, Mr. Orange, also known as Freddie Neuendijk, he is the policeman in the midst, but the suspicion has been off of him because he's had a bullet in his belly. In an interview featured in the documentary I Am Fishhead from 2011, psychologist Robert D. Hare reports that Mr. White and Mr. Blonde illustrate the difference between the mental health diagnoses of sociopathy and psychopathy. Mr. White is a sociopath, a professional criminal, who nonetheless has some loyalty and standards of conduct. He takes no pleasure in violence, but regards the use of force as an occasional necessity in his vocation. In contrast, Mr. Blonde enjoys torturing the captured police officer. Mr. White explicitly describes Mr. Blonde as a psychopath and condemns his reckless shooting of people. Now we jump back in time once again, We're in Mr. Orange's flashback. This is 
the longest and biggest and most revealing of the three. Completely different vibe to the rest of the movie. Mm -hmm. Casual clothes, way less tension. And it is cool that you feel that. There's a huge shift in how the whole movie feels. Absolutely. During this flashback. And this is kind of the difference between real time and movie time. Right. Because movie time feels way more casual. Yeah. That real time was starting to get to us. We're thinking, where the fuck is Nice Guy Eddie? And then we're thinking, where the fuck is Joe? Yeah. Why aren't the cops coming in here and stopping this? Are they going to let them just kill another cop? What's going on? I like this part. I obviously love this movie. I like Tim Roth. I don't know that he's great in his performance during the flashback section of the movie. I, I know where you're heading with it, yeah. It's a little too I'm acting mm -hmm. feeling to me. And I know there's scenes of him learning lines as if he's an actor, and I'm not talking about that. That's actually one of the better moments in it, I think. Yeah, yeah. Is him trying to learn that script. I'm talking about when he first walks in and is talking to the other cop. His... American accent starts to feel a tad wonky. His real accent starts coming through. Yeah. He's overdoing it, and he's, as he's recounting the meeting with the crew for the first time with the fellow cop Hardaway, he's really moving his hands a lot in a way that people don't ever really do. Okay. I don't know. It's just, uh, it feels a little unnatural. And I know yeah, that yeah. I sound like I'm being hypercritical, and if this is the only time you're ever hearing me talk about Tim Roth, then I need you to know that I do actually like him. Right. And he's way better in other stuff and in other parts of this movie. But this stuff, I don't know. It always felt a little weird to me. I understand. Hardaway, the other cop, is played by Randy Brooks, who has what I would consider to be one of the all-time most legendary IMDb photos as okay. his main photo. I'll just say that, and you can check it out for yeah, yourself. Yeah. Also, just like a legendary wardrobe. Yeah, I like the fact that the wardrobe was these people's own clothes yeah. because that tells us a lot about Randy Brooks, that he was yeah. a cool guy. <laughs> and I mean that completely. Definitely. <laughs> so much confidence. <laughs> In a cool way. Yeah. He pulls it off. But we're learning more about Mr. White, too, do you think of Mr. White as sloppy? Getting sloppy, maybe? Obviously, he's a long-time criminal. I think so. I think he's letting other things get in the way of him doing his job. Sentimentality, yeah. maybe? We don't know a lot about his character, so we can kind of project our own ideas, but maybe he's getting a little older. Yeah. Maybe the Sort of reminds me of Mike in Breaking Bad. Yeah, maybe there's some sadness over not being partners with Alabama anymore, right. and he's feeling a connection with... Mr. Orange, and so he's slipping. He's saying he's from Milwaukee. Mm -hmm. Well, he didn't say he's from Milwaukee, but he gave a Talk clue, about the Brewers. a hint. Yeah, Because who else would be betting on a Brewers game right. in 1992 than somebody from Milwaukee? Yeah. <laughs> Dead giveaway. A big part of Mr. Orange's flashback is the commode story, learning the story. It's part of him going undercover. Hardaway is this other cop who seems to be talking him through the process. He's like his liaison i guess right. he meets with him to get him through this so now we're doing flashbacks within flashbacks with fake stories yeah being shown as if they really happened so i was telling you before the episode when i was getting to around this part i'm looking at the netflix timeline and it's like 25 minutes left in the movie <laughs> i know and this is a much bigger chunk of it than you'd expect i know like, you get back for the final conclusion it and it's wrapped up so quickly I know, this is obviously Tarantino's tightest 
movie in addition to being his shortest by far at 99 minutes but yeah it really speeds up and accelerates in the last 20 minutes right it's crazy it's a commode story it's a scene man memorize it what look man undercover cops got to be marlon brando right to do this job you got to be a great actor you got to be naturalistic you got to be naturalistic as hell because if you ain't a great actor, you're a bad actor. And bad acting is bullshit this job. Yeah. What is this? That's an amusing anecdote about a drug deal. What? Something funny that happened to you while you're doing a fucking job, man. Damn. I gotta memorize all this? That's over four fucking pages Look, of shit. Man, just think about it like it's a, a joke, all right? You memorize what's important, the rest you make your own, all right? You can tell a joke, can't you? Nope. Pretend you're Don Rickles or some fucking body and tell the joke, all right? Now, the things you gotta remember are the details. It's the details that sell your story. Now, this particular story takes place in a men's room. So you gotta know all the details about the men's room. You gotta know if they got paper towels or a blower to dry your hands with. You gotta know if the stalls ain't got no doors or not, man. You gotta know if they got liquid soap or that pink granulated powdered shit they used to use in high school, remember? You gotta know if they got hot water or not. If it stinks, if some nasty, low-life, scum-ridden motherfucker, man, sprayed diarrhea all over one of the bowls, you got to know every detail there is to know about this commode. So what you got to do is to take all them details, man, and make them your own. While you're doing that, you got to remember that this story is about you and how you perceive the events that went down. The only way to do that, my brother, is to keep saying it, saying it, this was during the Los Angeles marijuana drug, 1986. I still had a connection, which was insane, because I couldn't get any weed any fucking where then. Anyway, I had a connection with this hippie chick up in Santa Cruz, and all my friends knew it. They give me a call, and they say, hey, Freddy. Say, hey, dude. Getting some, get some for me too. Like they knew I still smoked, so they asked me to buy some for them when I was buying for me. But it got to be, got to be, got to be, every time I bought some weed, I was buying for four or five different fucking people. Finally, I said, fuck this shit. I'm making this bitch rich. She didn't have to do jack shit. She never had to meet these people. I was doing all the work. But then I got to be a pain in the ass. People call me on the phone all the fucking time. I couldn't even run a fucking tape without six fucking phone calls interrupting me. Hey, when's the next time you're getting some? Motherfucker, I'm trying to watch The Lost Boys, you know? When I get some, I'll let you know. Then these rinky-dink potheads come by. They're my friends and everything, but still, you know? I got all my shit laid out in $60 bags. They don't want $60 worth. They want $10 worth. And break it up is a major fucking pain in the ass. I don't even know what $10 worth looks like. So, Matt, why don't you explain to us the basic idea of what happens in the commode story? (laughs) What is the commode story? Well, what is it? What is its function in your mind? Oh. This isn't a trick question. I I feel like it's pretty straightforward. I don't know. I feel on the spot. (laughs) Well, I think it's an anecdote that lowers the defense's yeah. Of Joe and his guys. It's a funny criminal right. anecdote. It's to give him some backstory and some credibility. Yeah, and relatability. Right. 
and he's got details down, so the story sounds like it's his. And a cop wouldn't have a story like this because why would a cop be involved in some random right. drug deal from a couple of years ago or something? So it's just a way to seem like he belongs. And it's a script provided to him by Hardaway. And it's just a story of basically there's a marijuana drought. He has a yeah. hookup. He ends up being a marijuana guy for his friends. But then right. he it's- works out a different deal with the girl. She wants him to help sell a brick. There's something very meta about the whole thing just because a lot of times when you hear about guys getting ready to play a part, they're building this backstory in yeah. that might not be in the script. Right. And yeah. this feels like this is happening in the movie. Yeah, definitely. I definitely feel like that probably planted some of these ideas. Yeah. In addition to Tarantino probably loving undercover cop stories in general. The story is for the benefit of Nice Guy Eddie, Joe, and Mr. White. So Mr. White is on the level of being there for recruitment of other guys. He's that high up. Yeah, yeah. So that makes it even more confusing when you're trying to figure out the Mr. Blonde of it all. But you could potentially believe that Mr. Blonde would be with them if he wasn't under this house arrest and accounting for time and all these different things. Orange, a.k.a. Freddy, can tell that Mr. White goes way back with Joe. That's mm-hmm. evident just from their interactions. Part of the story though is he's unloading this brick of marijuana. He goes into the bathroom and there's four state troopers in there with a German shepherd. The dog starts barking at him and he's got the pot on him at of the course. time. Yeah. For our younger listeners, you have to remember that there was a time when marijuana was very illegal still just like other drugs oh, and yeah. not considered a little more of a casual thing and not a big deal. Mm-hmm. I thought it was pretty cool that it cuts between locations as Freddie tells the story itself, finally having him not just delivering it in practice, not just learning it in his apartment, not just doing it in front of Hardaway, not just doing it for the benefit of Joe, Nice Guy Eddie, and Mr. White, but then also as he's standing in front of the theoretical cops in the bathroom in the fake story, yeah. having him still delivering the monologue. I thought that was kind of cool. I think so. This is a very weird situation. I don't know if you remember back in 86, there was a major fucking drought. Nobody had anything. People were living on resin, smoking the wood in their pipes for months. This chick had a bunch. And she's begging me to sell it. So I told her, I wasn't going to be Joe the pot man anymore, but I would take a little bit and sell it to my close, close, close friends. She agreed to that, said, you keep the same arrangement as before, 10% free pot for me, as long as I helped her out that weekend. She had a brick of weed she was selling. She didn't want to go to the buy alone. The brother usually goes with her, but he's in county unexpectedly. What for? His traffic tickets gone warrant. They stopped him for something, found warrants on him to the county. Now, she doesn't want to walk around alone with all that weed. I don't want to do this. I have a very bad feeling about it. She keeps asking me, keeps asking me, keeps asking me. Finally, I said, okay, because I'm sick of hearing that. Now, we're picking the guy up at the train station. Wait a minute. You go to the train station to pick up the buyer the weed on you? Yeah, the guy needed it right away. Don't ask me why. Anyway, we get to the train station, and we're waiting for the guy. Now, I'm carrying the weed around in one of those little carry-on bags. I got to take a piss. So I tell a connection, I'll be right back. I'm going to the boys' room. So I walk into the men's room, and who's standing there? Four Los Angeles County Sheriffs and a German Shepherd. They're waiting for you? No, it's just a bunch of cops hanging out in the men's room talking. When I walked through the door, they all stopped what they were talking about, and they looked at me. 
That's hard, man. That's a fucking hard situation. <laughs> German Shepherd starts barking. He's barking at me. I mean, it's obvious. He's barking at me. Every nerve in me, all my senses, blood in my veins, everything I have is screaming. Take off, man. Just bail. Just get the fuck out of there. Panic hits me like a bucket of water. First, there's a shock of it. Bam! Right in the face. I'm just standing there, drenched in panic, and all these sheriffs are looking at me, and they know, man, they can smell it. Sure as that fucking dog can. They can smell it on me. Shut up. Hey, so, so anyway, I got my gun drawn, right? And I got to point it right at this guy. I tell him, freeze, don't fucking move. And this little idiot's looking right at me, Nodding his head, yeah, and he's saying, I know, I know, I know. But meanwhile, his right hand is creeping towards the glove box. And I scream at him. I go, asshole, I'm going to fucking blow you away right now. Put your hands on the dash. And he's still looking at me, nodding his head, you know. I know, buddy, I know, I know. And meanwhile, you know, his hand is still going for the glove box. And I said, buddy, I'm going to shoot you in the face if you don't put your hands on the fucking dash. And then this guy's girlfriend, this real sexy oriental bitch, you know, she starts screaming at him, Chuck, Chuck, what are you doing? Listen to the officer, put your hands on the dash. So, you know, then like, like nothing, the guy snaps out of it and casually puts his hands on the dash. What was he going for? This fucking registration. Ha! <laughs> You're kidding. No, man, stupid fucking citizen doesn't know how close he came to getting blown away. That close, man. You know how to handle that situation. Just shoot in your pants and dive in and swim. Tell me more about Cabot. I don't know. He's, he's a cool guy. He's funny. He's a funny guy. Ultimately, the commode story works. Freddy is in the crew and the planning begins. Matt, what's your favorite performance in the film? Chris Penn stands out the most, especially when you get into the final sequence with him. Yeah, I definitely don't think that he is one of the leads. Right. I think it's definitely Keitel. Who is good? Buscemi, Roth, yeah. and Madsen, probably all above Penn. But Although Penn's think, probably pretty close yeah. to Madsen in terms of screen time. I just feel like Chris Penn's delivery, you just buy that character so much. Yeah, the but that I was getting to is, but I would say he shines the most to me. The character is so funny. Uh-huh. I, I know Jay Moore did like a great impression of it, yeah. and it's such a specific impression. You have to really like this movie specifically to get the impression at all. But there's so many funny, weird lines. Mm-hmm. The fact that he calls his dad daddy is so weird. Yeah. <laughs> but even like by that final sequence... I- Yelling these lines, he's like spitting all over the place. I know. It's unhinged. It's great. It's such a weird, I don't know. It's a weird character, but the performance adds so much to it. Totally. 
If we were to revisit our old Tarantino rankings that we did in the Pulp Fiction episode, would you have Reservoir Dogs where you had it back then? Because I think we both had it a little lower. I have it lower than some yeah. would expect. Yeah, I don't know. I'd probably take another look at it. But I, the movies I love of his, I love so much that it's hard for me to move around. Yeah, I guess I would probably put this more into the same category where I'd have Inglorious Bastards and Kill Bill, mm-hmm. which is basically my second tier. Yeah. But yeah, it's an interesting one to revisit every few years because for me personally, I felt like I did fixate on certain things a little differently this time around, and I noticed little connections and different things, and you can kind of forget because you feel like you know it so well. And it's almost like, eh, why would I watch that tonight when I've when I know, I know it? I've seen it so many times. And it's not quite as fun as some of Tarantino's other movies. Not as flashy. But yeah, I think every few years it, it reminds you of how fun and powerful it actually is. Totally. Because there are definitely some hilarious things in the movie to me. For sure. <laughs> and Chris Penn is right at the top of that list. Right. <laughs> On their way to the first meeting about the heist, Mr. Pink, White, Orange, and Nice Guy Eddie are discussing a television show. The show they're talking about is called Get Christy Love from 1974, and the actress whose name they can't remember is Teresa Graves. But they definitely all talk about Pam Greer (laughs) and liking (laughs) Pam Greer. Of course. These guys are basically me and Matt. Yeah. Except we're never going anywhere cool to plan a heist. We're usually just driving to Burger King or something. (laughs) I don't know. Eaton Park is like our version of this place. Some other things I liked in this little segment here at the end of Orange's flashback. I like Freddie putting on the ring and giving himself the mirror pep talk because there are definitely some other mirror pep talks, especially in Tarantino's early stuff. I don't know that he's done it as much recently. I guess Once Upon a Time in Hollywood had one, Mm -hmm. but I don't. I don't think Django or Hateful Eight, or maybe they, I don't know. But that was definitely something in a fair amount of his movies, is that mirror pep talk move. For sure. And I liked the putting on the ring for some reason. It just felt like he was putting on a character. Like, I got that totally vibe, that move. Nice Guy Eddie tells a pretty funny story about a woman named E. Lois, how she glues a guy's dick to his stomach who was abusive. <laughs> When I'm enjoying that story, I'm realizing that this movie is mostly people telling each other stories and delivering monologues. That's right, yeah. That's really all it is. (laughs) And the dialogue is fucking great. Well, I know. It's not concerned with, quote, moving the plot forward, unquote, which has become one of the curses of online movie talk Absolutely. Character-based storytelling. The acting performances help differentiate when the writing style makes the characters too similar. We were praising, or I was at least, the idea that all the characters kind of talk like Tarantino, but the acting performances are enough to elevate them and differentiate them. And yeah. so having all these fun, wild characters is what feels like it propels the movie even when they're just talking shit the whole time. With 20 minutes left in the film, and we're now just doing the color alias scene. <laughs> right. I love the minutia. This is really what the movie is. Arguing over the colors, <laughs> actually seeing this part at all. I think in yeah. most movies, they would already just have their code names. Well, that's the that's where Tarantino finds the beauty and the nuggets that go unexplored right? generally. Yeah, really taking the conversations that they had in Stand By Me, and instead of making them yeah. little kids around a campfire, it's gangsters about to kill people. Right. 
Oh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? Giggling like a bunch of young bros in a schoolyard. Well, let me tell a joke. Five guys sitting at a bullpen, San Quentin, wondering how the fuck they got there. What did we do wrong? What should have we done? What didn't we do? Whatever that, it's your fault, my fault, his fault, all that bullshit. Finally, someone comes up with the idea, wait a minute. While we were planning this caper, all we did was sit around and tell fucking jokes. Got the message? Well, it's not to me to holler at you. This caper's over, and I'm sure it's gonna be a successful one. Hell, we'll get down to Hawaiian Islands. I'll roll and laugh with all of Find me a different character down here. Right now, it's a matter of business. With the exception of Eddie and myself, and we already know, we're gonna be using aliases on this job. Under no circumstances do I want any one of you to relate to each other by your Christian names. And I don't want any talk about yourself personally. That includes where you've been, your wife's name, well, you might have done time for a bank, maybe arrived in, say, Petersburg. All I want you guys to talk about, if you have to, is what you're gonna do. That should do it. Hear your names. Mr. Brown, Mr. White, Mr. Blonde, Mr. Blue, Mr. Orange, and Mr. Pink. Why am I Mr. Pink? Because you're a faggot, all right? <laughs> Why can't we pick our own colors? No way, no way. Tried it once and doesn't work. You get four guys all fighting over who's gonna be Mr. Black. But they don't know each other, so nobody wants to back down. No way. I pick. You're Mr. Pink. Be thankful you're not Mr. Yellow. Yeah, yeah but Mr. Brown, that's a little too close to Mr. Shit. Well, Mr. Pink sounds like Mr. Pussy. How about if I'm Mr. Purple? I mean, that sounds good to me. I'll, I'll be Mr. Purple. You're not Mr. Purple. Some guy in some other job is Mr. Purple. You're Mr. Pink. Who cares what your name is? Yeah, that's easy for you to say. You're Mr. White. You have a cool-sounding name. All right, look, if it's no big deal to be Mr. Pink, you want to trade? Hey, nobody's trading with anybody. This ain't a goddamn fucking city council meeting, you know. Now, listen up, Mr. Pink. There's two ways you can go on this job. My way or the highway. Now, what's it gonna be, Mr. Pink? Jesus Christ, Joe, fucking forget about it. It's beneath me, you know? I'm Mr. Pink, let's move on. I'll move on when I feel like it. You always got the goddamn message? So goddamn mad how you guys can hardly talk. Let's go to work. Unique and memorable marketing, branding, advertising opportunities so many things come out of the multicolors of course you can do the different posters for the european release the distributor used one sheet posters for each of the main characters this was quite a novel strategy at the time in 1992 but now it has become a widespread thing that oh, yeah. tons of movies do the line let's go to work is often attributed to this film because Joe says it at the end of the scene, but in fact it comes from The Professionals from 1966, one of Tarantino's favorite movies. So that is, of course, the danger and downside Another, to being an homage to things, right. is that sometimes... Takes credit for things that it didn't mean to. Yeah. Didn't People then to. just think that that's from this movie because it became more famous right. than the original thing. 
there's a scene of Mr. White and Mr. Orange staking out the diamond exchange, complete with a little bit of black and white footage, which was kind of weird. Yeah. And then that morphs into footage of White and Orange's escape from the disastrous heist, which includes Mr. Brown's death. Mr. White kills some cops, which sends Orange into shock. The two of them attempt to carjack a woman on some deserted little alleyway, and it's her who shoots Orange in the belly. His reaction is to return fire from the pavement, killing the woman. Shocking. You know what's weird, Hmm. and probably intentional, is that one of the sheriffs in the bathroom in the commode story is talking about somebody going for a gun in a glove box, and that's what ends up killing Freddie Neuendijk. Yep. Or eventually, I guess. Well, he gets shot a few more times. (laughs) Finally, we're back in the present. Nice guy Eddie Pink and White return to the warehouse coming upon quite the unexpected scene with Blonde laying dead in a pool of his own blood. Orange, still clinging to consciousness, tries to convince them that Blonde was planning to kill them all and steal the diamonds for himself. In response, Eddie impulsively kills the cop and accuses Orange of lying since Blonde stayed loyal to his father, serving those years in prison without breaking. There was clearly a deeper bond between Eddie and Blonde. Are you implying that they were lovers? I they certainly listen. were talking about having sex with men a lot well, <laughs> in look, front of each other. <laughs> very close friends, at least. I could not imagine any scenario where you and I started wrestling on the floor. No. <laughs> First of all, I would have a heart attack if, any, if I had to move at all. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure some people who don't know what I look like probably are picturing something a lot different based on the jokes I make. Yeah. They're thinking Maybe slight exaggerations. <laughs> Brendan Fraser and the whale or something. <laughs> it's all a bit, people. Come yeah. on. I actually kind of look like Brad Pitt and Thelma and Louise, people have said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. During filming, a paramedic was kept on the set to make sure that Mr. Orange's amount of blood loss was kept consistent and realistic to that of a real gunshot victim. I have no doubt that the amount of blood is realistic. I do doubt his ability to still be alive (laughs) with that much blood out. At several points, Tim Roth had lain in the pool of fake blood for so long that the blood dried out and he had to be peeled off the floor, which took several minutes. Yikes. Can we talk a little bit about Chris Penn's legendary denim performance here? Absolutely. (laughs) Those jeans. (laughs) It's a statement. (laughs) <laughs> I love that whole look he has. You no, know, it is. There's like a mom jeans thing going on. Well, yeah, I don't know. They're just kind of real old school denim. Yeah, with a shirt tucked in, almost cowboy esque with cowboy type boots. Yeah, but then a windbreaker type jacket. <laughs> no rich criminal would dress this way. I don't know anyone that would yeah. dress this way. And then Joe finally arrives. And if you're remembering what Orange said, you'll know that the cops have to be moments away now. Yeah, although it feels like maybe they're a little, a little slow to the draw. A little too long. Yeah. Joe informs them that Blue was killed by the police as well. Why don't you tell me what really happened? What the hell for? Could just be more bullshit. This man set us up. Dad, I'm sorry, but I don't know what the hell's happening. It's all right, Eddie, I do. What the fuck are you talking about? That lump of shit's working with the LAPD. I don't have the slightest fucking idea what you're talking about. 
Joe, Joe, I don't know what you think you know, but you're wrong. Like hell I am. Joe, trust me on this. You've made a mistake. He's a good kid. I understand you're hot. You're super fucking pissed. We're all real emotional, but you're barking up the wrong tree. I know this man. He wouldn't do that. You don't know Jack's shit. I do. The cocksucker tipped off the cops and a Mr. Brown and Mr. Blue killed. Mr. Blue is dead? Dead as diligent. How do you know all this? I was the only one I wasn't 100% on. I should have my fucking head examined going ahead when I wasn't 100%. That's your proof? You don't need proof when you have instinct. I ignored it before, but no more. You lost your fucking mind. Joe. You're making a terrible mistake. I'm not gonna let you make it. Come on, guys. Nobody wants this. We're supposed to be fucking professionals. But I look. It's been quite a long time. A lot of jobs. There's no need for this, man. Let's just put our guns down and let's settle this with a fucking conversation. Joe, if you kill that man, you die next. Repeat, if you kill that man, you die next. Larry, we have been friends, and you respect my dad and I respect you, but I will put fucking bullets right through your heart. You put that fucking gun down now. God damn you, Joe. Don't make me do this. Larry, stop pointing that fucking gun at my dad! Joe says it was Orange who set them up, and that Orange has been working with the LAPD. Oh, yeah, but here we go. White. Not here for it. Joe is about to execute Orange, but White intervenes and holds Joe at gunpoint, insisting that Orange is not and cannot be a police officer. This action causes Eddie to aim his gun at White, creating a Mexican standoff. That's right. A Tarantino special. Definitely. Larry, stop pointing that gun at my dad! All three fire. Both Cabots appear to be killed instantly, somehow. Yeah. But White and Orange who were both shot in the standoff, remain alive. When Joe mentions that Mr. Blue is dead, he says he's dead as Dillinger. Mm-hmm. Tierney played the title role in the film Dillinger from 1945. That's some fun crossover. That's wild. Yeah. 1945. Yeah. Chris Penn's <laughs> blood squibs accidentally went off too early in the big standoff scene, forcing him to fall to the floor. There is not, as is commonly believed, a mystery round being fired off screen. The only people that mm. could potentially be shooting at Nice Guy Eddie would be Mr. Pink, who has ducked down and hid, or yeah. Mr. Orange. Who else would it be? A Someone's mystery in the round. Grassy knoll. Yeah, for some reason, the Mexican standoff ending here. Because of the weird thing of Mr. White somehow shooting two people almost simultaneously. When he has two guns on him. Aside from that, it's never really been that interesting to me. I, I, yeah, I, I know. get why people obsess over it, but at the same time, it never meant that much to me. Yeah, I've always just taken it as this is what happens. I don't put a lot of thought into it. The squibs going off early thing, I think, explains some of the confusion over when you slow it down, because people have done that and been confused about what they're seeing. And that led to the whole off-screen shooter thing, because it doesn't really sync up with what Mr. White is doing. There was a second spitter. Basically, (laughs) yes. But I always took it to be that we understand the end result, 
and the end result is that the Cabots are dead. Right. Mr. White has been shot, as has Mr. Orange. Well, you have to... You said two guns on Oh, him. that's true, yeah. One is the on one Mr. Is Orange. Orange. Yeah, that's right. Mr. Orange somehow gets shot again. Yeah, yeah. And then is still not immediately dead. Right. But still, how he gets the two shots off, Mr. White still doesn't make sense. Two anyway. fatal shots. Instantly was like, Yeah, like, Orange just can take bullets for the rest of his life. <laughs> exactly. The logistics of it, whatever. But people have obsessed over it. The botches and the unknowns and weird little moments all get wrapped up in it. Courting and reveling in a little mystery, a little uncertainty. That's what Tarantino liked to do anyway. He definitely left some of the weird vagueness with Mr. Pink and the noises that you hear outside and all that shit. So I think this all kind of plays into it. What he would like is to not really know exactly what you're supposed to believe happened. Which I like as well. With the others all down and out, Pink takes the diamonds and flees as White cradles the dying Orange in his arms. Orange confesses that, yes, he is an undercover police officer. White then reluctantly presses his gun to Orange's head. At that moment, the police finally storm the warehouse and order White to drop his weapon. Gunshots ring out, White collapses, and the film ends. According to cast member Edward Bunker, there was a scene that would have shown exactly what happened to his character, Mr. Blue, but the scene was cut due to limited budget. He also did point out that Lawrence Tierney could never remember his lines, so Tierney's scenes took a while to shoot. (laughs) 
According to Tarantino, Mr. Pink survives. You can verify this by increasing the volume of the background sounds. When Mr. Pink runs out of the building with the diamonds, police officers can be heard shouting at him to put his hands on the ground. Gunshots can be heard. Then Mr. Pink shouts that he has been shot. You can hear the officers talking to each other as he is arrested. So I guess Tarantino is saying that Pink was shot, but he does survive and is just arrested. I guess he probably just threw that out there in case he ever wanted to use that Bring character, that character back. But whatever. Yeah. Many people have asked Quentin Tarantino why Mr. Orange confessed to being a cop to Mr. White at the end of the movie. They argue that he only had to keep quiet for 60 more seconds and he would be in the clear. He mentions this in the DVD commentary for the film. Yeah. His response to these individuals is that they did not truly understand the movie if they are asking this question. Tarantino says that in all of the Asian countries in which this movie was released, this question was never once asked. He says that in Japan they have a word for this called jinji. Without an English equivalent, it basically means that this was something that Mr. Orange had to do as a man, something that he yep. owed Mr. White. Furthermore, he could only do it in those 60 seconds when Mr. White would have that opportunity to do whatever he deemed necessary. Meaning that, of course, if he doesn't tell him, he's going to learn anyway. Absolutely. But he has to tell It has him. to come from him. It's the bond they've formed. Yeah, it's a code of men that extends far beyond the arbitrary delineations and, at and this descriptors point, of cops and criminals, good guys, bad guys. How can he continue to watch Larry embarrass himself? <laughs> Come on. I know. <laughs> These two were men, bonded now by blood. He owed Larry, a.k.a. Mr. White, the truth, not as a cop or as a partner in crime, but simply as a man. So there you go. Sundance in January of 92 obviously creates a stir. The rest is history. In February 2012, as part of an ongoing series of live dramatic readings of film scripts being staged with the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, director Jason Reitman cast black actors in the originally white cast with Lawrence Fishburne as Mr. White, Terrence Howard as Mr. Blonde, hmm. Anthony Mackie as Mr. Pink, Cuba Gooding Jr. as Mr. Orange, Chi McBride as Joe Cabot, Anthony Anderson as Nice Guy Eddie, Common as both Mr. Brown and Officer Nash, Okay. and Patton Oswalt as Holdaway, the mentor cop who was originally played by Randy Brooks, the only black actor in the film. Because of the nature of the script... And how it's staged, I do think that this obviously has always had a lot of potential as a play. Absolutely. Which allows for creativity in casting, whether it's changing the races, changing the genders, what have you. And as we mentioned earlier, I do think of it as a precursor to The Hateful Eight, which is almost like combining Reservoir Dogs with The Thing or yeah. something. I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation of this movie, but I'm going to try anyway. Kant? K-A-A-N-T-E, a Bollywood film released in 2002, is a remake of Reservoir Dogs combined oh, wow. with elements of City on Fire. How about that? The film also borrows plot points from Heat and The Killing. Tarantino has been quoted as saying that Kant is his favorite among the many films inspired by his work. Tarantino later screened Kant at his New Beverly Cinema alongside Reservoir Dogs and City on Fire. Oh, sweet. 
Tarantino revealed in June 2021 that he had at one point considered remaking Reservoir Dogs as his 10th and final directed film, though he quickly pointed out that he won't actually do it. Yeah, I think that would be kind of lame. If he had unlimited projects in the chamber oh yeah then yeah of course. i think Put it, it would on be kind of cool yeah, to remake right. it every now and then and, and switch something up about it or something but if you're saying oh i'm only going to do one more project then no that's please, not it don't do that right. <laughs> folks that'll do it for reservoir dogs i know it's long and i know there's a lot of clips but thanks for sticking with us thanks for listening this has yeah. been an incredible it's a big year. oh yeah wow an incredible Tell run me about it well, it's just been fun, man. Yeah, yeah. Interacting with people on a whole different level because of the listener requests and the email address. Who knew how great the email address would be for us? Maybe we should have done that a while ago. <laughs> I love that if you listen to all of our episodes, at one point we're saying we're never going to have an email address. That's stupid. Then two episodes later, we made an email address, probably said it on the show maybe once or twice, never mentioned it again, Yeah, became defunct <laughs> then Passwords years go by yeah. <laughs> fast forward it's been a journey most of a decade yeah. and now here we are <laughs> all right anyway let's get to the segments to wrap this thing up do you have a recommendation for our listeners no okay then i think we'll just skip past recommendations this week because i don't really have anything pressing either and we're just going to do a quick email because if you remember last week because i'm sure you all listen to every second of the once bitten episode of course i mentioned that we're not going to do physical media spotlight until october so we're pausing that for a while we're going to jump into email and then we're going to wrap it up and this one's a quick one but there was a little bit of a theme since the last time we recorded of people reaching out all right all right all right you go ahead you go ahead you keep it secret but you remember this when you control the mail you control information this email comes from our old friend theodore subject line r.i.p friedkin all the email says is friedkin died exclamation point i know well a lot of people reached out a few people on twitter email real life whatever because we just did bug on the show, mm-hmm. and we've talked about being fans of Friedkin, and of course we are, but it made me realize recently with the passing of Paul Rubens and Sinead O'Connor, mm-hmm. and now Friedkin, who we've talked about William Friedkin and Paul Rubens in the last eight months or so. I don't know how long ago we did Pee-wee's Big Adventure, but we did it last November. And it's weird, and I think I used a Sinead O'Connor song recently or something on the show, something like that. Mm, and Always good. I think doing the podcast and having these pop culture conversations and these movie conversations keeps us connected to these people and Definitely. these movies and these things. And that ultimately is a good thing and well, fun and positive. And it's sad yeah. that these people pass, but it's cool that we can say, oh, we were just talking about yeah, these yeah. guys or these people. and. I don't know. To me, that means that they're always kind of with us, and it's sort of cheesy to equate anything that we do on this podcast as if we're like really a part of anything. But you know what I mean. We're we're keeping a conversation yeah. going about all these people at all time, which doesn't necessarily have to mean anything for anyone other than us, and then hopefully maybe some of our listeners too. That you feel connected to these people and their work, and then they can 
live on after they pass. Well, it's definitely been bumming me out thinking about 70s filmmakers were 50 plus years past that era. A lot of the new like, American cinema people oh, are deceased yeah. or retired, long retired. Right. Have to be up there in age. I'm even thinking about Peter Bogdanovich and William Friedkin. Man, this list is going to run out at some point. Like we're closer to I know, list I running know. out, and that bums me out. I don't want to be yeah morbid, but yeah, there's been times where I've even said to you and like listed a bunch of legendary people, right. actors and directors, and said in the next five to ten years, most if not all of these people will be dead, and yeah. it's just weird to think about. I know. But it's sort of the price you pay as a culture for having an exponential amount of famous people Definitely. after a certain point because of television and film. Right. More and more people are famous every year, and they're not dying at the same rate as more new ones are being made. So at some point, it's going to catch up. Yeah. And you're going to have these weird passages of time. Agree. You just hope that not too many of them feel like they're going before their time. Right. Anywho, <laughs> weird note to end on. Totally. What <laughs> but, do you have to say, Theodore? Thanks, Theodore, for reaching out about Friedkin, as always. Yeah. Yeah. He does sort of feel like one of our guys because there's probably not a ton of podcasts that have talked about Friedkin as much as we have. Yeah, We've true. done three of his films. Yeah, and I, probably, and I, I think we pr- might do a couple more before well, it's all said and done. Only like a week before he died, I rewatched To Live and Die in L.A. Yeah. And then in honor of him, Lindsay and I watched Killer Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, I think Killer Joe would be easier for her to watch than sorcerer <laughs> well for a while i think when we did killer joe i was like Lindsay, you can't watch this this is not for you but then i was like i got myself convinced. disappointed that only i laughed at my joke oh I felt yeah, like sorry. it should appeal to you too since you've actually seen sorcerer correct yeah it's kind of a funny joke it is yeah not because there's anything explicit in sorcerer it's just such a a man movie true it's hard to imagine Maybe that's sexist of me. Maybe it is. And if there's any female listeners out there who love the movie Sorcerer, starring well, Roy Scheider, <laughs> well, it's funny because Lindsay definitely calls Jaws a bro movie. But if Jaws is a bro movie, then Sorcerer is definitely a bro movie. Sorcerer is bordering on an incel movie. Yeah. It's just a guy on a journey. Right. <laughs> but Sorcerer is great. Well, okay, there's a recommendation for you. Maybe not an official one yeah. with the theme music and putting it in the show notes. But yeah. yeah, if you haven't seen Sorcerer, in honor of Friedkin. Why don't you just put them all, yeah, Killer Joe, To Live and Die in L.A. Put well, the, yeah, if yeah. We're, it's unofficial. Check out yeah. most of the filmography. I can't speak to pre-French Connection. I know he's had a few films, and some of them are more famous than others, but I haven't seen any of them. After French Connection, I like French Connection, Exorcist, Sorcerer, yep. Cruising, oh, To yeah. Live and Die in L.A., Jade. I'm putting <laughs> Jade on there. <laughs> I'll allow it. Bug and Killer Joe. Yep. I haven't seen Blue Chips. I should watch it. I've never seen it all the way through. I've seen it in parts. I actually did see one of his collaborations with Tommy Lee Jones, and it's one of the first R-rated films I saw in the theater, which is one of the weirdest facts about me. Which one was it? I think it's called Rules of Engagement. Okay. It's not The Hunted. It's right. the other one. Okay. I've never seen The Hunted, and I don't remember Rules of Engagement. I was, at, I I was also actually saw Rules like of Engagement. I also don't really remember it. I think it's mostly a military court drama yeah, yeah. or something like that. Anyway, R.I.P. Friedkin, R.I.P. Sinead O'Connor, R.I.P. Robbie Robertson, too. Robbie Robertson, Paul Rubens, 
what was the guy's name from Euphoria? Angus Cloud. It, it was mm. a little bit of a depressing stretch there. Hopefully yeah. we're out of it. But like I said, I, it sucks. But I think that's going to be more common because there's just so many famous people right. now. That's just the way it is. Anyway, we'll be back next week. I think we're going to have an, a regular episode and a give us a second next week. So please make sure wow. you subscribe to the podcast. Never miss anything. Apple Podcasts, Podbean, wherever. You never know where we're going to drop two things in a week. Find us on X slash Twitter, at GreatestPod. And please email the show, GreatestPod at gmail.com. If you've done a listener request or have one coming up or anything like that, please tell us your story about this movie, why you wanted us to do it, why you like it, whatever. Give us some details. If you'd like a sticker or have a listener request, please reach out in those places. Anything else, hit us up. We love to interact with you. Finally, find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby. Anything else, Matt? No, no. This is plenty. <laughs> it's a million degrees in here. Yeah. It's getting late. Matt's jet-setting across the country once again, yeah. nonstop. It is a lot. We'll talk to you next week. He was on his way home from Candletop. Been two weeks gone, and he thought he'd stop at Webb's and have him a drink before he went home to her. Andy Wolo said hello, and he said hi, what's doing, Wolo said sit down, I've got some bad news, it's gonna hurt. He said I'm your best friend, and you know that's right, but your young bride ain't home tonight, since you've been gone, she's been seeing that Amos boy Seth. Well he got mad, and he saw red, and Andy said boy don't you lose your head, cause to tell you the truth. I've been with her myself That's the night that the lights went out in Georgia That's the night that they hung an innocent man Oh, don't trust your soul and old backwoods southern lawyer Cause the judge in the town's got bloodstains on his hands Well, Andy got scared and left the bar Walking on home cause he didn't live far See Andy didn't have many friends And he just lost him one the Brother thought his wife must have left town So he went home and finally found The only thing Papa had left him And that was a gun Then he went off to Andy's house Slipping through the backwoods quiet as a mouse Came upon some tracks too small for Andy to make screen at the back porch door and he saw Andy lying on the floor in a puddle of blood and he started to shake where the Georgia patrol was a making their round so he fired a shot just to flag him down and a big belly chef grabbed his gun and said why'd you do it and the judge said guilty in a make-believe trial slapped the sheriff on the back with a smile said supper's waiting at home I gotta get to it That's the night that the lights went out in Georgia That's the night that they hung an innocent man Well, don't trust your soul and old backwoods of a lawyer Cause the judge in the town's got bloodstains on his they hung my brother before I could say The tracks he saw while on his way To Andy's house and back that night were mine And 
his cheating wife had never left town. And that's one body that'll never be found. See, little sister don't miss when she aims her gun. That's a night that the lights went out in Georgia. Oh, oh, oh. That's a night that they caught an innocent man. Oh, oh. Well, don't trust your soul and all backwoods southern lawyer. When the weight of the world has got you down and you want to end your life Bills to pay, a dead-end job, and problems with the wife But don't throw in the towel, cause there's a place right down the block Where you can drink your misery away Just a flaming mow away. Happiness is just a flaming mow away. Bobby! How's the world treating you, Mr. Gumble? Uh.